Salutations. Welcome to Pod Mortem. I'm Renee Hunter Vasquez, joined as always by my co-host, my husband and my brother. Hi, I'm John Paul Vasquez. Hi, I'm Travis Hunter. This week, we're recording live from Sims Funeral Home discussing the 1995 anthology horror film, Tales from the Hood. This film was directed by Rusty Cundiff and written by Cundiff and Darren Scott. Cundiff's desire to educate with social commentary married perfectly with Scott's goal to entertain. The result is a unique anthology that touches on real-world social issues while still maintaining its ability to bring the scares and the laughs. This film was requested to us by friends of the show, Nisa Hunter, Kristen Lofton, Miguel Myers ATX, John Ramos, William Barry, Pancake the Panda, Beth Bauer, Girl That's Scary, Blaine Hancock, and Monster Mailman. We want to thank each and every one of them for their support as well as this suggestion. So... What did you guys think about Tales from the Hood the first time you saw it? It was 95, right? Yes. I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember watching this movie on VHS. I didn't watch it in the theaters. Um, the DVD, I believe, didn't come out until 98. Um, I love this movie. Uh-huh. I remember watching it, and I don't know, like, everything about it. I was like, this is real shit. You know what I mean? I was like, this is fucking... This is something everybody should be watching and talking about. And um, it's sad to say that it still holds to this day. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. And uh, watching it, 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 it brought up a lot of old feelings and newer feelings. But I, I real quick, I want to set the tone here. Okay. 95. <laughs> a new, the price of a new house was $113,000. <laughs> okay. All right. Rent was five fifty a month. The cost of gas was a dollar nine a gallon. Oh my god! I mean, it's a different time. It's yeah. Di- <laughs> so again, for this movie to come out then and have this commentary then, and it's still, still the relevant. same shit to today, or till today. Come on, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? But other than that, the movie's fantastic. I fucking love this movie. The music, the actors, the everything about this movie for me is top notch i think i watched this movie for the first time a few years ago Mm -hmm. and i was as jp said i think shocked by how poignant it still is yeah Yeah. because when i was thinking about it i was like you know this is 95 uh rodney king la riots a few years previous Mm -hmm. so you're like this is probably gonna be very much a time capsule of that feeling yeah of this you know era uh, in the culture Mm -hmm. but no it's still very much yeah. Uh very much. Almost more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of upsetting. I will say um <laughs> I do love the theme. It th- this is for me as far as anthologies go. I love when it's about comeuppance. Yeah. And that is so in tone with like the EC Comics uh yeah. idea of like either revenge or like th- you're going to get yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's always good. I will say um personally for me as much as i do enjoy this movie Mm -hmm. it can be quite tonally jarring because (laughs) one minute you're laughing (laughs) i I think (laughs) think a thousand (laughs) that's the thing for me is that um uh we we dip into these stories and you're like well that's the most like uh horrible 
social commentary I've ever seen in my life. Then we come back and he's like, the shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. I guess, yeah. This guy's I guess wow. I'm wow. to, The yeah. shit. Yeah. Yes. I was like, I guess I'm supposed to be. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very weird. Yeah. But then, and then we dip back and it's like, oh, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, oh, you want the shit. <laughs> yeah. I, like, oh, okay. I guess we're back to everything's fine. Yeah. Everything's campy and fun. So <laughs> it is, it's, it's a little jarring for me uh, from time to time. But I will say that, um, of all the horror anthologies I've watched, I don't think I've ever been more uncomfortable mm-hmm. than watching Tales from the Hood. Yeah. And I think that's the point. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it's very effective in that way. But at the same time, there are a few segments that I'm like, I could skip this the next time I watch it. It's 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 very heavy. Yeah. And if yeah. you're not in the right headspace, it can... It, I'll say, I, I think I speak for all of us and anybody who has seen this, but particularly that last story. Yeah. Um, it is a lot of this. And, and like you said, T, and like I had set up top, they had very, the, the, you know, two people behind this had very different ideas on what they wanted out of this film. Mm-hmm. And Darren Scott wanted to be funny and scary and campy and entertaining. Mm-hmm. And Rusty Cundiff wanted to teach and wanted to address issues. Right. And we get both. This film, a lot of times, is a, I'll say most of the time, is a very successful marriage of both of those ideas. Right. Um, but like you said, there are times where I'm like, how was I laughing at anything before? Yeah. <laughs> like, how, how did I feel joy before this segment? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It Seriously. Is, it's so, um, it's, it's, it's so important. It's so heavy. It's extremely, emotional Mm -hmm. it is sad it's devastating but at the same time you have clarence williams the third who is just i mean chewing every ounce of he's he's incredible in this yes, he's hilarious best. they saved on craft services because he just yes. ate, <laughs> <laughs> he just ate the scenery exactly. <laughs> so it is it is uh like you said a bit jarring at times because it, it they're so drastic from th- what we're being shown from one minute to the next almost. And I, I there's uh, the one of the middle stories is very funny in a lot of ways. But when you really stop and think about what you're consuming, it's not funny at all. Yeah. And so you kind of have this like, um, what am I really laughing at here? What do they what are we really laughing at here? It, it's very uh, it's not just your can't be this isn't creep show you know what right, i mean right. and no. no disrespect to creep show no. we grew up on creep show we love creep show mm-hmm. but this is is you know it's something is something else entirely right and there are those one liners and takeaways in this really unforgettable performance of mr sims man um a really bonkers ending you know it, yeah. it's no <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to talk about that ending <laughs> I, <love laughs> <'Cause> that. <laughs> I, I was like huh. <laughs> but we all right take, <laughs> we take well, these yeah. <laughs> we take these pit stops along the way into some very dark places right but again these are conversations that need to be had yes. and they're uh-huh. important to be had and if this is the way to get this point across to an audience that maybe wouldn't wouldn't be able to hear these things or see these sides or you know be receptive to it it's masterful it's it's really brilliant but yeah it is very um 
you go through a lot of emotions yeah. <laughs> yeah. watching this. It's it's not an I wouldn't call it an easy watch. Not at no. all. I, I, again, that last one. Yeah. And what's surprising to me is that whenever I had never seen it before, right. a lot of people sold it to me as a horror comedy. Yeah. And I'm like, after having seen it a few times now, I'm like, I don't think so. I mean, it is. It but is, but it's not. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. It's all over the board. Like, yeah. it's it's, yeah. it's everything. <laughs> I thought, because, I mean, when you look at Creepshow, like, everything is campy and, like, super fun. Right, right. It's like if their frame story was the creep and he's like, look, we all have a lot of fun in Creepsville. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I really need to talk. <laughs> I really want to talk to you about something serious. There's serious issues <laughs> that we need to address. Uh, and so you're like, oh wait a minute, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I did uh, kind of want to talk about the production. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very interesting to me. I, I read this transcript from an interview with, I believe, it was Pod of Madness, and Rusty kind of also did a commentary track. Okay. But um, from those, they had talked about how I guess Rusty kind of had a one act play. Oh, all right. And it was called um, the Black Horror Show, Blackanthropy. And what it is, is kind of, it's horror, but I think it was comic as well. And it's kind of the story of a conservative black man who becomes, a, he said a werewolf, but it's like a black panther that he becomes. And he becomes a black panther, both physically and oh in political ideology oh and so it's a very interesting thing that i would have loved to have seen yeah Yeah. but um darren scott i think either co-wrote it with him or was a fan of it and they decided to collaborate on this project together Mm -hmm. Uh but this was his idea as far as horror is concerned is not the ghosts, the demons, mm-hmm. even though we'll get to something. Yeah. Later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk. But um, he's like, what scares me and what scares him is real stuff. Yeah. And this film is filled with real stuff. Yes. But he had also made a film called Fear of a Black Hat and it was kind of a mockumentary. Yeah. And <laughs> through this. Okay. Now. Have you seen this? I have not seen Because I have. I have not seen A this. few times. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's the same guy. Yeah. Oh, all right. Uh, <laughs> he had said that uh, there's a character in the film. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you might have to follow me a little bit because the character is a parody of Spike Lee and John Singleton. <laughs> and the name of the character <laughs> is Jake Spingleton. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, I'm going to make you watch that now. <laughs> Until next time. No, no, no. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Can you just say the um, name one more time? That is... <laughs> that is Jake Spingleton. <laughs> but, so... <laughs> the thing is, is that he had heard through all these circles that um, Spike Lee is pissed. I yeah. bet. And so... He's been waiting to get this call from Spike Lee to be like, what is this? Yeah. And so his phone rings and he goes, Rusty, it's Spike. Call me back. And he's like, oh, I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) But what it was is Spike Lee was a fan of the film. And so he's like, what do you want to do next? Oh, wow. And the answer, he's like, well, Jake. (laughs) It is. uh, It was Tales from the Hood. All right. And so that's how it came to be. (laughs) That movie is so funny. I've never seen it. Yeah. That's (laughs) (laughs) That's <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I'm, I want to watch it now. Just, just from just based on the name, that. like with that level of wit. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I wrote that. <laughs>
Now, before we rehabilitate this film, we would like to issue a warning for spoilers. Podmortem is a very in-depth podcast, and in thoroughly discussing horror films, we have no choice but to spoil a thing or two. If you don't wish to be spoiled, please go watch the film, then come back and enjoy the show. If you've already seen the film or don't care about spoilers, then let's get the shit. Just very quickly, as we said at the top, this does delve into some very serious issues. Domestic violence, police brutality, a lot of social issues. If that is not something you're ready to receive, protect your mental health. You know, we'll see you next week. But the film opens with the title card, Tales from the Hood, in colorful letters accompanied by a musical sting. The beautiful and haunted vocalizations of a woman begins as we scan very closely over the components of something. When we pan out, we see that we've been looking at parts of a skeleton. It has sunglasses, a bandana, a gold tooth with three sixes carved in it, and it's holding a gun pointed toward us. A lit and smoking joint hangs from the corner of the skeleton's mouth. So we all love skeletons in this house? Absolutely. And the joint. I was going to say, especially ones that smoke joints. (laughs) That skeleton was cool. (laughs) Uh, They said that this was a last minute decision. Oh, wow. They ran through the budget apparently and they needed an opening and they were like, well, (laughs) I guess we can do this. And it's effective. No, yeah. Yeah, it definitely works. And it fits, I guess, thematically with what we're about to see in these stories. Oh, yeah. Um, I did want to talk about, because you see on the opening, it's uh, 40 Acres and a Mule Filmworks. Mm-hmm. I remembered that from history class, and it's one of the most fucked up things ever. But um, it was after, I think it was 1865, they had this order where they were going to give emancipated black families um, 40 acres of land. I think it was the coast of Georgia. Mm-hmm. But um, they gave a lot of emancipated black families that land. And then Andrew Johnson comes into office and he rescinds the order. And so giving the land back to the Confederate owners previous. Of course. Mm. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah. Fuck that dude, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Most presidents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's heavy, though. Yeah. yeah. And so t- for Spike Lee to name his film company, that yeah. is pretty. Well, I mean, I think. If we all know anything about him, we know that <laughs> Jake don't play around <laughs> at all. No, Jake means business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we zoom in on the reflection in the skeleton sunglasses to see a car driving down the road, bumping the grave by NGN. Suddenly, we are on the street now in the frame story, Welcome to My Mortuary. The car comes to a stop and three men get out, all armed with guns. They're Stack, played by Joe Torrey, Ball, played by DeAndre Bonds, and Bulldog, played by Samuel Monroe Jr. They stand outside the Sims funeral home. Organ music plays loudly from inside, and the sign promises them to be professional and courteous. Inside the funeral home, with a white flower in his lapel, a man is absolutely tearing it up on the pipe (laughs) organ. Tearing it up. I was like, God damn. Talk about people meaning business. (laughs) Um, I did want to call out the score because the score in this film is fantastic. Oh, yeah. It was done by Christopher Young, who, if you recall, also did the music for Hellraiser. Hey, hey, all right. And so there's a ton of moments, especially later on in some stories where the sounds of certain strings. Yeah. It's like, holy shit. It's so good. Okay. Yeah. I did, um, when you had said how... Uh, effective the opening with the skeleton is mm-hmm. i had watched the featurette on the um shout factory blu-ray for this mm-hmm. and rusty cundiff had said that this was kind of um marketed as like a spoof 
See, and that's that's kind of a problem because yeah. I think that that's how it trickled. Really? Yeah. That's how it trickled so, down to me. Yeah. And so he said that when people finally saw it years later, they were like, oh, if I would have known, I would have seen this, you I know, when it came out. I never took it as that. That's crazy. It's, yeah. That's how it was presented. That's oh, how it was marketed. Oh, hell no. But I feel like that that would kind the the skeleton at the beginning and everything if that is what i went into this thinking that that's what it was i'd be like okay you know and so i can see you really being blindsided by what's to come if yeah. that's what you're sitting down and expecting mm-hmm. it's just i mean we we've talked about it multiple times how marketing can kind of you know really set the film at a disadvantage it's it's unfair it and is. i yeah. don't know who would sit down and watch this and be like oh it's a spoof you know it's a it's a black take on no no, no yeah. it's really not okay you know but i mean i think whenever you watch the first part of the frame story there is a campy tone yes and so you could be lulled into that false sense of security but that security is snatched very yeah. very quickly pretty quickly and it i i got whiplash from yeah <laughs> Back on the street, after taking a hit off of Ball's joint, Stack looks at the funeral home up and down and decides that he's out. He says that he's not into dead people shit, and Ball agrees that the place does look evil. I want to be honest. Um, it looks cool. We're robbing a cool place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's just what it is. It's not... <laughs> We're doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but but the don't place. Talk about the place. Yeah. We're, we're evil. <laughs> Bulldog tells them both to just shut up and that this is business. He says that dead people aren't what they need to be worried about. So the sooner that they get the shit, the sooner they can get out of here. He angrily takes the joint and all of the argument is gone out of ball and stack. I've gone to a lot of places to pick up drugs. Never a funeral home. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know like, what, what shit or what they're getting here, but I the the more this went on, and I realized that it was a matter of I guess because I thought they were just coming here to rob the place. That's what it looks and like. I'm like, oh, it's a some kind of a deal. Here. Yeah, yeah. You've struck. But it, it's yeah. still kind it's of muddy, we- like yeah. as it goes along. Yeah. Of how this came to be. Who called who? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that. <laughs> Uh, before we get in, I did want to say real quick that I do want to talk about Samuel Monroe Jr. Yeah. He's been in a lot of stuff. And I've seen this dude work constantly. Bulldog? The, yeah. Uh, he was in the Players Club. He was in Don't Be a Menace, Menace to Society, Set Damn. It Off. Like, he's been around for a while. A lot of these people in these movies have. And watching it again now, and it's like, man, I remember seeing a lot of these people do. A lot of them were in the same movies. They kind of, you know what I mean? Same thing. Everybody hangs out. You want to make movies with your yeah. friends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the people you trust. You know they're good actors. You know they're going to be there and show up on set and do what they got to do. Uh, but a lot of these people, I was like, damn, I remember them from this. Oh, shit, I remember. Like, I, I love when i watch something from my childhood and then i remember i'm like man i remember you did other shit yeah <laughs> I, like, I remember why i i like you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they follow bulldog as he starts to walk up to the funeral home they climb the stairs as the organ music continues but when they get to the door stack proposes that he stay outside and keep lookout just in case something <laughs> happens <laughs> predictably this pisses bulldog off after confirming that stack has his gun he tells him that if a dead person comes after him just kill them he starts toward the door again but stack stops him again he asks how he's supposed to kill something that's already dead that's like killing it twice 
ball pipes up that it's like refried beans. He says that he never understood why you would fry beans twice. Just fry them right the first time. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I love this. I was like, yeah. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. For me, I mean, refry them right. <laughs> it's fucking stupid. Them, them saying they don't understand it. You don't try to understand a miracle. It's just, <laughs> you just they're delicious. It. Take eat, it. Yeah. Eat it. Be just grateful. It. Um, I was laughing though because I'm like, is Stack actually afraid of zombies here? Is that what's happening? It kind of seems yeah. like it. Okay. <laughs> He's very uneasy. <laughs> but Bulldog is over it. He tells them both to shut up so that they can get this over with and be done with it. They approach the door and Bulldog tells them one more time that there is nothing to be scared of before ringing the bell. Suddenly, someone appears at the door, scaring the shit out of them. Stack runs away, heading straight into a post and falling flat on the porch. <laughs> it's very slapstick. It is. <laughs> they said that they tried it with a stuntman and it looked okay, but when the actor did it himself, he did it better than the stuntman. Nah. Oh, shit. All right. <laughs> That's what's in the film. That's hilarious. But with a big smile, Mr. Sims, played by Clarence Williams III, tells them that he's been waiting for them. I just want to say off the rip that I don't think I've ever seen anyone have more fun with a no. role. No. I was going to say the same. Okay. It, <laughs> it is a treat to watch. Yes. Um, I, in that feature at kind of had said that the, that Mr. Sims was just going to kind of be like a creepy caretaker mm -hmm. and that when he was cast, it completely changed the character. I mean, I can't, he, he's everything. Like yeah. he's fantastic in this just a character while i was working on this script um i watched hoodlum with john paul and he's in that oh, being shit. a normal ass person oh, that's and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> the range yeah <laughs> uh i watched a interview that uh deandre bonds it was a holden court podcast okay it about i think it said it was like seven months ago he said he was working that when he got there that that he was like, man, he goes working with Clarence Williams III. He goes, he's like the greatest. He goes, he helped. He talked to me. He was very nice Aww. to everybody. He goes, but when it was time to get on set and he got in character, he goes, he didn't talk to nobody. He was methodical. He did. He was like, I learned a lot from this dude. He was like watching the way he works and playing the role. He was like, and after he was like, he's great. Right back to normal. Everybody was whatever. I love that, though. Yeah. That he's able to like toggle in yeah. between yeah. and still be a nice guy. He didn't send anybody a rat or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how you do exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> but inside, Mr. Sims dumps some ice into a silk cloth for Stack. With wide eyes, he offers him some iodine from the lab and Stack snaps at him, saying that he doesn't want anything from this house of dead folks. I think that I mention the wide eyes quite frequently if Mr. Sims is speaking, just assume that he's got yeah. he's got wide <laughs> eyes going on. Watching the performance, if I'm any one of these dudes, mm. um, he is clearly <laughs> 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 terrifying. He's fucking with us. There's we something. Need to go. Yes, <laughs> they're so wrapped up in this deal. I'm like. You need to leave. <laughs> this man is made of red yeah. flags. Yeah. <laughs> the way his, he darts his eyes around, it's like, you are cartoonishly planning something. Yeah. And his tone never sounds afraid. No. Oh, so no. It's like, oh, no. Even yeah. when he should be. Yeah. Or should be, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Stack makes it a point to mention that he's not a baby. Mr. Sims agrees with this, but Ball doesn't. He says that Stack sure looked like a baby when that door swung open. <laughs> 
Before the two can start to fight, Bulldog squashes it and tells them that they need to take care of business and get out of here. That's fucking fantastic. <laughs> With the infighting. Yeah, it's that like, was so funny. Can we focus? Yeah. yeah. Hey, 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 come on, man. He's got a concussion. Yeah. Yeah. Like, let's just. He's scary. <laughs> focus up. Can we please? As Mr. Sims starts to light a cigar, Bulldog asks him where the shit is. On commentary, Rusty Cundiff had said that paying attention to the sound design in this moment. Yeah. The sound of him puffing the cigar for the first time. Yeah. And the height of the flame on his lighter. He said, this is a clue. Oh. Huh. And I was like, oh, yeah. I need to go back and watch it. Now, the other things that are clues are everything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> About Mr. Sims. <laughs> but I mean, those are clues too. <laughs> Uh, they, but this is another yes. one. And, yeah, two clues. Two clues. Uh, his entire everything. Yes. And this, this and cigar. cigar. <laughs> but after feigning ignorance, Bulldog reminds him of the shit that he found. And Mr. Sims is like, oh, the drugs. He says he found a bunch of them in the alley. <laughs> Bulldog asks where they are. And Mr. Sims finally lights a cigar and takes a long drag before asking, you got the money? Stack says that they do, but Bulldog interrupts to say that he'll get the money when they get the shit. The camera is tight on Mr. Sims's face as he laughs at the drugs being called the shit and repeats that he'll get the money when they get the drugs. He finally decides, okay, this is where I have in my notes, uh, Mr. Sims is a character. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Yes. He's really great. <laughs> He admits to the men that this is all new to him because he's not a drug dealer. He walks over to the closed casket in the front of the room and opens it to reveal a body inside, Clarence. He says that he's a mortician, so the only drugs he knows anything about have to do with the deceased. Ball asks what kind of drugs dead people need, and Mr. Sim says all kinds. They fill them full of embalming fluid to keep them from smelling and decomposing before the service. Ball asks what happened to the man in the casket, and Mr. Sims says that they say he went crazy. He muses, staring at nothing, that <laughs> death comes in many strange packages. We gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> you can keep the shit, yeah, really. how about that? We've changed our mind. Um, I did laugh whenever Ball asks, he's like, what happened to him? Because in my head, I was like, could you explain in vivid detail, maybe about, <laughs> yeah. maybe about four times? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking like this is a very good conceit for an anthology film. It's yeah. genius. It's very good. And I, I, if I recall, because I only saw the film once and I didn't necessarily care for it completely. Mm -hmm. Isn't the Mortuary Collection? I don't. I'll tell you what. And I didn't I didn't dislike the Mortuary Collection, but I only remember one thing about it. That's, and I'm sure you remember, you know what I'm talking of about. Of course I do. <laughs> it might have been the same thing, though. I can't remember. That, we have requests for that, too. We should do that well, We one should cover then. it. Yeah. I was just thinking yeah. of um, films that owe things to other films. Yeah. yeah. And I can't remember if this is one of them, but I just wanted to say it. <laughs> just in case. Yeah. Because they, I mean, if they're the first to do something like this. Yeah. yeah. It's very cool. This, I know he says it a lot, but this was also another staple is something we said growing up. The, the shit. shit. Uh -huh. <laughs> Knee deep in the shit. Yes. Like the, a lot of <laughs> that goes on in this movie, I will be honest. We said a lot of this stuff. My friends, my brother, <laughs> like we, we, I mean, we all grew up in bad neighborhoods, whatever. You know what I mean? So we understood, but it was like, we, you know what I mean? You got to find humor in what's going on. Of course. You know what I mean? 
But that, it's like, oh, what are we going to do? We'll go get in some shit. <laughs> it's like, oh, what? It's like, okay. Like, bet. Yeah. It's like, how Like how? How much shit? Like, knee deep? And yeah. It's like, oh, See, bet. But I think the thing is, the difference for me is that that's you saying it with your friends. Yeah. If I'm in this situation <laughs> and Mr. Sims is like, oh, you're going to be knee deep in yeah. shit. I'm, I'm gone. Leaving. Never yeah. mind. Yeah. What do you mean? You can yeah, keep it. Like, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> Stack tells Mr. Sims that he doesn't need to hear any of this, and Bulldog agrees, saying that they just want the shit. Mr. Sims says they'll get the shit. They'll be knee-deep in the shit, as you said. He brightens and says that he's got it hidden. It was so much that he couldn't even lift it by himself. He says that he'll tell them about Clarence on the way unless they're scared. Wait, it's so much that you couldn't lift it by yourself. Who helped you? Yes. Yeah. And we never learned. Was no. it Clarence? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the men don't make a response. So Mr. Sims continues <laughs> again, wide eyed. Yeah. He says that Clarence was hearing voices calling his name, voices from the dead. We pan down to the corpse of Clarence as Mr. Sims repeats his name again and again with mounting intensity. Finally, Officer Clarence Smith, played by Anthony Griffith, opens his eyes. So I did want to say, first of all, the idea of him saying his own name creepily. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, they said on commentary the shot going from Mr. Sims to Clarence. Yeah. The way the camera dips and almost like comes down fully. Uh -huh. They said they had to get a special apparatus for the camera to allow them to do that. Mm -hmm. And it was because Rusty Cundiff did a very, very detailed shot list for the cinematographer. And that was always in his plan was to dip directly from and to do that. Yeah. But in doing that, I was like, well, who was the cinematographer on Tells from the Hood? Mm -hmm. I found out something that is unbelievable. What? All right. Um, the cinematographer for Tales from the Hood was Anthony Richmond, and his body of work should make him a household name. Yeah. But I had not heard his name until now. Um, but just a few of his films, and then I have a thing that surprised the hell out of me. Okay. But he was a cinematographer for Don't Look Now, Candyman. Oh, shit. The Sandlot. Hey. What? Legally Blonde. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you see the variety. Yeah. yeah. But what surprised me, you know, Get Back, the Beatles documentary yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that Peter Jackson put together from all the old footage. Guess who shot that footage in 1969 of the <gasps> Beatles? Really? Yes, for the documentary Let It Be. It was Anthony Richmond. Holy wow. shit. Yes. What a fucking career. Yeah. What a life. I was just like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Brilliant documentary, Hell by the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. But we transition into the story Rogue Cop Revelation, where Clarence sits passenger in a squad car while his partner, Officer Newton Hauser, played by Michael Massey, drives. There is something I don't inherently, I don't know much about Michael Massey, mm -hmm. but the way he plays this character is like, I feel like he, I feel like he's evil. <laughs> like he, <laughs> He's frightening in his he is scary. delivery. Yeah. He's scary. And that hasn't happened yet. We don't know him yet. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, not to give anything away. But just wait, just wait. The lights flash as they come to a stop and get out of the car. Newton tells the rookie Clarence that this is a quiet neighborhood, but that doesn't mean you can slack off. The second you let your guard down, the shit hits the fan. Clarence understands, saying that he needs to stay alert at all times, and Newton commends him. He says that they need to check out what's up ahead. In front of them, past another squad car with flashing lights, is the car that they've pulled over. Martin Ezekiel Morehouse, played by Tom Wright, is being searched by Officer Strom Richmond, played by Wings Hauser. Officer Billy Crumfield, played by Dwayne Whitaker, stands behind them. 
a lot of, I mean, Pulp Fiction. Yes. Mm. A, I, I feel like in this, like you were saying, John Paul, as all of these actors are introduced in the other segments, I'm like, oh, I know you from that. I know yeah. you from that. Yeah. It's, it's wild. But, and uh, Tom Wright, of course, was on Seinfeld. Yes. And he was on something else that I'll reference later because it, it coincides. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But when Martin says that they're going to lose their badges because they had no reason to pull him over, Billy promptly goes to the back of Martin's car and busts one of the taillights, giving them a reason. No, no, no. Yeah. No, not at all. Fuck you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Strom laughs as he walks away from Martin and Billy takes his spot, hitting him in the back and telling him that he's not taking any more cops badges. Martin says that if they keep selling drugs in his community, they can bet on him continuing to take them down. Billy says that they'll see about that and hits him hard. Clarence comes over asking what's going on, but Billy calls him a rookie and tells him to go away. He gives him the task of running Martin's plates to see if the car is stolen. And after hesitating for a moment, Clarence does. He returns to the squad car and runs the plates on the computer. Strom takes his turn threatening Martin now, asking him if he likes ruining the lives of good cops. He starts to yell at him, but Martin calmly says that he has no problem with good cops. He only wants to see the low lives like Strom run out of the department. So I learned on commentary that Cundiff's father was a detective. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so he dealt with the idea of a certain code. Yeah. And a certain culture yeah. when he was a police officer. In the, in right. the force. Yes. And so that obviously trickles down to Rusty Cundiff and kind of informs, I think, the ideology of um, Morehouse. Yeah. In that he's saying, you know, and o- honestly, this fucking dude, Strom, he, they're literally selling drugs on the side. Yeah. yeah. As police officers, and they're like, good cops. And like, yeah. Shut the that's fuck bullshit. up. Yeah. yeah. On, good dude. cop where? Yeah. Like, I don't see I him. Don't, yeah. I don't see one at all. <laughs> that That's the thing. And I know there's a large cop, you know, whatever people are, are saying, saying a lot of negative things. And I'm sure there is good cops, but you got to understand these bad cops is the same thing when you want to try to throw statistics around and be like, well, so many blacks and Latinos are in prison. Well, you're putting us there. Yeah, you're you're doing that because you want to fucking be a dick and plant evidence or whatever or be an asshole. Do your job, dude. Just like when we go to work, we do our job like we're supposed to to provide for our families and go home. Don't make it a status quo to fucking bother somebody because the color of their skin. That's bullshit. And it, and it taints the the ones who are there yeah. trying to, you yeah. know, it's 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 just it's fucked up. And again, this is 1995. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is a conversation that we are still having. Yes. But the thing about that again, once again removed only a few years from Rodney King. Yeah. yeah. With this. And so especially poignant at the time Mm -hmm. incredibly poignant still yeah um but as i was watching this i was like there need to be and i I don't remember the full film but there needs to be more serpicos that are rooting out yeah yeah Uh, now and i don't know anything about the real serpico he might have not been good we're not talking about him we're not talking (laughs) we didn't do our homework (laughs) we're talking about al pacino yes we we need more al pacino (laughs) (laughs) it's the key to everything yes Strom slams Martin's head through the driver's side window, shattering it. Pushed to his limit and bleeding, Martin turns around and punches Strom in the face. So this window, Cundiff said that they hired a stunt team first Mm -hmm. and they got the glass rigged. It was like ready to go and they slammed the stunt man's head into it 
and nothing happens oh, except no. the stuntman hurting his fucking head. Oh, oh I no. bet. And so kind of said, we stopped working with that team because they were going to format or I guess formulate. I don't know what word I'm looking for. Right. They, <laughs> well, they, do we something. Yeah, yeah. they were going to do some stunts later <laughs> and they did not do those stunts because of how bad that stunt went. Oh, man. somebody well, could get hurt. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially yeah. if like things are, the stunts are escalating, you yeah. know, yeah. things goes on. That's and, and they concerning. are. And yeah. So um, they got a new team in, and that's the breakaway glass. Good. Uh, right. Yeah. Because that's what it's supposed yeah. to be. Yeah. Strange Fruit by Billy Holiday plays as Billy takes this opportunity to beat Martin with his club. Again, I was having a great time laughing at Mr. Sims and his antics. Yes. And very quickly, this the the song Strange Fruit mm-hmm. hard to hard to listen to. It is very emotional. Very emotional. I can't even talk. Yeah. Very fucking sad. Um. And then to come here from where we were just at yeah you know especially if you think that you're sitting down to watch a fun campy anthology this is a hard left turn yeah and strange fruit was a surprise yeah and it made it perfect for what's happening yes um i remember looking at the lyrics we studied them in college Mm -hmm. if you have not heard that song yeah or looked up the lyrics to it you have to yeah and billy holiday's version is very haunting it's just um it's yeah just listen to it or read the lyrics either way it's very important very heartbreaking but clarence starts to get results on the plates of course confirming that the car belongs to martin as billy strom and newton all pass martin back and forth beating and strangling him with a blinking highlight the computer identifies martin as a political agitator that made me think of um, COINTELPRO, mm-hmm. the FBI, where they basically their goal, and it's it's a line echoed in a song by Rage Against the Machine, mm-hmm. but it's literally real. Like you can look it up, where they basically said um, through their work it would be possible to pinpoint potential troublemakers and neutralize them. Huh. That was what? their plan. <laughs> And so that's why, and you read about the FBI sending letters to MLK, yeah, and telling, like, trying to make him like unalive himself and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, that's that's what this is born out of. Here's the thing, and it, and we get into it more in another story, but but that's the thing when you have somebody with a strong enough voice to unite us uh-huh. mm-hmm. instead of having us in fighting against each other, and we can see who really is oppressing us. They don't want that. Of course yeah. not. You know what I mean. But that's a whole other. I'm gonna try not to get too too preachy with this one, but this uh, movie makes it very hard. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but Clarence thinks of Martin giving a speech, promising to stop every crooked cop in the city from draining the life out of the community. Finally, as Strom strangles Martin to the ground, Clarence gets out of the car and runs over, asking what the hell they're doing. He goes to tend to Martin, and Newton tells Strom not to do this in front of the rookie. Clarence says that this is Martin Morehouse, and he can't believe that he didn't recognize him. He gets up and goes after Strom, demanding to know what the hell is wrong with him. Newton and Billy pull him away, but Clarence yells that Martin needs to be taken to a hospital. Strom taunts Clarence, asking if he wants some of him before ordering him back to the car. Newton doubles down, yelling at Clarence to go sit back in the car. Clarence does, and before Newton follows him, he tells Strom that he knows what he needs to do. I thought that Newton was going to kind of be this um, 
this in between which if you're complicit at all there is no in between but i thought he was going to be like and i I guess we do get that a little bit where he's wrestling and he kind of knows that we shouldn't be doing this or whatever but he's going along with it um but you know the fact that he's like y'all know what you i know you're in on like all like all three of y'all and i think that they talked about it in the featurette where i mean strom is a he's a fucking bully yeah and even though you know billy and newton might know that what they're doing is wrong they're not going to stand up to him it's it's just it's really horrifying yeah it is i think a lot of people don't realize or maybe need to take more to heart that a lot of times complacency is complicity absolutely yeah and so and especially in situations like this like you can't Yeah. yeah But in the car, Clarence says that they need to report Strom and Billy. Newton stops the car and tells Clarence to listen. He harshly reminds him that he's a rookie, but Strom and Billy have been risking their lives on the street for years. He says that Martin went for their gun and Clarence immediately clocks this as bullshit. Newton admits that they did go too far, but it could all have just been a mistake. He says that next time, though, it could be Clarence. So you don't roll over or rat out a fellow officer. Out of broke his fucking neck. He grabs <laughs> Clarence's chin to That's make him look saying. into yeah, his face. Uh, uh, yeah, no, that no, I don't know. As he sternly tells him that you never, never break the code. Clarence wordlessly removes Newton's hand from his face. Fuck you, dude. How yeah. about that? In the other squad car, Billy drives as Martin lies unconscious, beaten and bloody in the back seat. He pulls up behind Strom driving Martin's car at a pier. They pull Martin out of the back of the squad car, waking him up. They have to half carry him to his own car and sit him down in the front seat. Drifting in and out of consciousness, Martin doesn't fight Strom when he presents a syringe and injects its contents into his arm. I do want to say on commentary, they said that this was a production assistance arm. Mm -hmm. And they had a, I believe it was the medical staff of the film inject him with a saline solution. Okay. So that's a real needle going in. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's bold. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Strom tells Martin that he was right about one thing. Cops are dealing drugs in the 6th precinct, but he's never going to tell about it. Martin slowly slumps over onto his side and Strom tells Billy to put him in the trunk before slipping the empty syringe into Martin's pocket. Billy drives the squad car out of the way and they guide Martin's car off of the pier and into the water. They said that they had one shot to do this. Oh, man. Oh. And so they set up like 10 cameras. Yeah. <laughs> because they're like, we're going to we, get it somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you don't think about that whenever you're watching a film that you're like, when you think of a film's budget. Yeah. We can't send a car off a pier five times. Yeah. yeah. You know, so they had to do it right and do it. And they, it looks great. Yeah. Yeah. I will say their plan. Didn't they say to throw him in the, in yeah, the trunk? That, uh, yeah. What the fuck? I, I, what is your I, plan? It looks like they had wanted it to make it look like he had maybe OD'd and then or lost control of his car while he was high or something but he wouldn't be in the trunk no like you guys are bad at even framing this (laughs) yes and the popping of the syringe into his shirt pocket yeah that's like and that goes there that's that's (laughs) overkill it's too much they're horrible yeah you're already telling him to throw the drugs in the trunk you don't need to put him in there too yeah i'm very it's like yeah that's where he'd keep the drugs and he'd be over here why would you put him in there too i'm driving the fucking car how did he drive off the pier they didn't think make it make sense at Clarence's house, he's woken, crying, and drenched in sweat by the sound of Martin screaming his name before saying, bring them to me. 
Next to a bottle of gin on Martin's nightstand is the headline that Martin was found dead and is now being suspected of the drug dealings. Strange Fruit plays again as Clarence takes a drink from the bottle of gin before throwing it into his mirror, shattering it. One thing I did want to talk about, because I actually forgot to mention it when you introduced Martin Morehouse, Mm -hmm. but obviously Martin is Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. as a reference. Now, I didn't hear any of this from Rusty Cundiff. This is my own interpretation. Yeah. But Martin Luther King graduated from Morehouse College in Mm. the 1940s, I think. Yeah. Okay. So Martin Morehouse. Oh, And and Jike. Spingleton. Spingleton. <laughs> you were so, waiting for the last one. Yeah. <laughs> I so, think Martin Morehouse is more effective. Yes, I, I, prefer, I prefer a reference to <laughs> an HBCU instead I'll, of a... <laughs> I'll never get over it, ever. Yeah, no, that's a lot. <laughs> that, that literally is something that w- me and Nay would have done. And we would have. In our House of like Wax <laughs> ripoff. <laughs> I feel like we wrote that. Yes. Um, it was founded by Alfred Castle. Uh, yes, 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 yes. It's a fan Nobody, fiction. Nobody's going to crack right. this gun. Maris Melton, right? Yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we cut to Clarence walking down the street, drinking a bottle of alcohol concealed by a brown paper bag. When he approaches a beautiful mural of Martin Morehouse, he hears the words again, Bring them to me. Suddenly, he sees Martin, crucified against a cross, calling him by name and telling him again to bring them to him. Clarence says that he will. Time to get on that ass. It's, yes. Um, he has his mission. Yeah. I did love, there's a shot of Clarence spinning. Yeah. And what they did is they put him on a turnstile mm. and we'll say they spin him left. And the camera around him goes right. Yeah. And so it's just this disorienting thing. It is, yeah. Thing. It looks good. It does. And it shows you where he's at. Yeah. yeah. I will say the mural, they made Martin look very angry. And I'd be, I'd be upset. Yeah. Well, I, I've thought of it more as like a, um, like what he's saying. Like, we can't just lay down and let this happen to us. So more like empowering. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. It was okay. the eyebrows. I just thought it was. They were mad eyebrows. <laughs> they were mad but eyebrows. he deserves to be fucking mad. Yeah. He does. He does. But a squad car pulls up to a cemetery where Clarence sits on a grave drinking. It parks and outsteps Newton, Strom, and Billy. Clarence greets them, saying that for a minute he didn't think that they would show. Billy laughs, saying that Clarence looks like fly-covered shit. Thank you very much. It was, okay, so he says it to his partner, and then he says it to Clarence. It's like he was making sure it was a good yeah. joke or something. It was like, very weird. Burn, yeah. right? I, like, I should say it, right? Um, I did want to point out Anthony Griffith because he gives a an excellent performance yeah. in this segment. Cundiff said on commentary, he didn't know this, but Anthony Griffith was a stand-up. Really? Yeah. He had been on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson like what? a few times. Really? Yeah. And so he had said, and again, it goes into another comedian that we're going to see later mm-hmm. that comedians really yeah. dig deep. We talk yeah. about that a lot though. Yes. Like uh, we, we were talking about Brian Cranston and Bob Odenkirk. Yes. Yeah. Where you wouldn't expect it. They like this, this depth that you don't get when they're doing comedy, mm-hmm. but you have them do serious shit and it's like, Whoa. Yeah. yeah. It's there. It's impressive. Not every comedian. No, that's true. Cause we do have our, the Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> that even struggle with the funny stuff. Uh-huh. But, <laughs> Quite often. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's impressive. And the comedian you're talking about later Yes. Lord me. And that feeds into our thing that we've had a running thing of 
with um, false sense of security. Yeah. Yeah. And casting. Yeah. We've, we've been talking about that a lot. Yeah. Newton tries another approach, not the fly covered shit route, but he says that he hasn't seen Clarence in a while and he misses him. Clarence reminds him that he has his number. He could have reached out and touched him. He says that Strom could have told him how to do that. Strom laughs as he steps over to Clarence and pulls him off the grave. He asks him what he called them out here for, and Clarence says, to celebrate. Strom throws him onto the hood of the squad car and asks him again, so Clarence tells him again, to celebrate. He stands on the hood of the car and asks if they remember their anniversary. One year ago today, he fell for his bullshit and really thought that Strom would take Martin to a hospital. I was like, a year? Yeah. Yeah. That was surprising to me. Strom tells him to shut up. He says that they tried to take Martin, but he didn't want to go. That is the worst lie yeah. Yeah. in the history of lies. I do want to say there is like a long kind of a crane shot that follows from the car to Clarence standing up. That is quite nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of interesting camera movements in this film that I don't ever hear talked about really. Yeah. Right. But uh, it's good. Yeah. yeah. Clarence yells at him to cut the shit, but Strom yells at him to shut the fuck up. Clarence tells him to save his story because it never made any sense. Newton says that if they go down, he goes down too. But Clarence says that they just killed a good man and ruined his name. He should have turned them in instead of just quitting the force. In response to this, Strom and Billy just call him a pussy. That look, first of all, never like that as an insult, period. It's not an insult. It's not an insult. Yeah. We can all agree. But to say that or any whatever they're meaning to him mm. because he didn't want to be complicit in a cold blooded murder. Like, yeah. that, that's my weakness. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's where that I have to put that on my job applications. <laughs> yeah. As Under your, weaknesses, as weaknesses. I put I don't want to be complicit <laughs> in <laughs> cold blooded murder. murder. <laughs> I also feel like that's uh if that's your only answer to something is to insult somebody. You've lost. Yeah. Yeah, you've, I don't you've, think. Yeah. Name calling. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. all you got. You're, You're done. dumb. Wow. That's it. Wow. I win. Yeah. yeah. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. So long. Yeah. Clarence jumps off the hood and says that he figured the least they could do is pay their respects. Or he asks if they're too much of a pussy to visit him. Newton asks if he's really asking them to go out to Martin's grave with him. And Clarence says, yes. Newton asks, if they go do this, will that be the end of it? Will Clarence finally be satisfied? Clarence assures him that he will be totally satisfied. Newton says that in that case, there's no problem. He gets Strom and Billy to agree, and Clarence leads the way to Martin's grave. Billy asks what they're doing, and Newton says that Clarence is not going to be making it back. So there are two things here. First of all... Uh (laughs) um, Newton being so open with that when he oh yeah <laughs> but when he says Clarence won't be making it, it's like yeah we gathered we yeah know. yeah we, we figured <laughs> we know what your plan <laughs> yeah. is um but first of all that line about Billy asking what they're doing here yeah that was added in post because test audiences were like why are they following him it's like why are they following really? him yeah so <laughs> they had to put that in so audiences wouldn't be like I don't understand. Were the audiences um, asleep? Mostly. <laughs> uh, but the other thing that got me was Billy. He goes, how are we supposed to visit a dead guy? You're in a cemetery. Oh, yeah. oh my. How, how are you a cop? Dude? How are you anything? <laughs> how are you a human? <laughs> but they approach Martin's grave and Clarence tosses his bottle aside. He speaks to Martin saying that he brought them and if he's happy. The officers mock him, but Clarence says that his orders were to get them out here, and he's good at following orders. Damn. Mm -hmm. 
Suddenly, lightning flashes and thunder cracks, but Newton's like, it's just, it's just an electrical storm. Yeah. <laughs> like, he can't do that. He's, everything's pizza. Don't. It's just yeah. a, a terrifyingly timed electrical yeah. storm. This is the worst timing we can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Even that, I'd be like, no, no, no. Yeah. Something's wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah. It my feels bad, like a bad. nightmare, but don't, don't worry. We'll be going home to our wives today. Yeah. <laughs> just an electrical storm <laughs> strom asks if that's it and if they're supposed to be scared to death but he says that clarence is just pissing him off he volunteers to go first he pushes clarence away from martin's headstone and stands before it himself he laughs saying that he's gonna piss on martin's grave he unzips his pants and lets loose, soaking the front of the headstone. Billy tells him that it's pretty cool. That's where. <laughs> well, he, he's like, oh, that's that's pretty cool, man. But, like, it's he, like, but you you don't need to say that. No. Just look. It's, that's it goes, a, that's, it goes a, back that's that. a lot. Yes. It goes back to the bully thing. It, yeah. Because even he's like, oh, that's that's too much. But he's like, well, cool, strong. Like, yeah. you're wetting that thing or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> wetting that thing. All right. Um. <laughs> anyway. Interesting. Uh, hey, JP. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but, Why'd yeah. you turn away from me? <laughs> Why? Um, but yeah, that that struck me as well that even that and that's the complicity thing. Yes. Yeah. And it's very funny to me because um, as it continues, like they try to it seemingly put a stop to it. Yeah. And Newton's like, if the man doesn't want to piss, it yeah. doesn't have to do it. But it just takes the turn, obviously. Yes. Yeah. But and Newton does push him when he says that. Strom says that the grave is still pretty dry and invites Billy to come piss with him. Billy says that he already went before he came out of here. <laughs> Do you remember that episode of South Park when Cartman's like, and I don't even watch South Park anymore, but he's like, I don't need to fart anymore tonight. That's what, I, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it made me think of. Hey, well, it's funny it's because... Like, oh, man, I already peed before enough, we got yeah. here. In all I fairness, don't have any pee in me. that's the smart way to live because he didn't know what they were doing out here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... You know, always go before you go. Yes. No, it's a rule to live by. <laughs> That's one life. It's uh, the worst person you know made a good point. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I'll, I'll give All you right. that yeah. one. You should pee before you leave. But Strom pushes him toward the grave, ordering him to pee on it. Billy walks over to it and Newton tells Strom to just leave him alone. <laughs> like, the if the man doesn't mean yeah. <laughs> you Don't make him go. <laughs> There's nothing there. He's tapped out. <laughs> But Billy says it's okay and makes his way over to the headstone, saying that this is as good a place as any to go. He takes a deep breath as he unzips his pants. Strom and Newton come up behind Clarence and both draw their guns, pointing them at his head. Suddenly, a hand reaches up from beneath the grave and grabs Billy's willy. Uh, <laughs> a little decorum, I'd say. But... That was decorum. Okay. <laughs> give me a break. Give me my flowers. It could have been worse. Could have been a lot worse. I'll give you one flower. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lily. <laughs> I'll take it. Ah, lily, for Billy's willy. for Billy's willy. <laughs> he pulls him down, slamming Billy's head into the headstone repeatedly before dragging him down into the earth, leaving the ground undisturbed like nothing happened. That's what you get, you fucking dickhead. Absolutely. Yeah. Literal they, dickhead. Oh, come on now. See, that, that, that's that's the decorum. That. <laughs> you didn't appreciate it I'm when I gave it to you. your lily back. I'll never, I'll never do it again. Um, I did want to talk about that because they had said they filmed this in a real cemetery. Okay. And so they had to find a cemetery that would allow them to dig out a plot for this stunt. Yeah. Oh, all right. And the um, 
grass returning is obviously CG. Yeah. And kind of said that he would have preferred that they had done that better. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it looks as good as it can. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, I think it looks I, fine. I don't yeah. think that that was the focal point of what just happened. No, yeah. <laughs> not at all. No shit. And <laughs> I, I will say as well, this scene made me realize how funny it is when ghouls like um, pull put their hand through the dirt. Yeah. Because that means <laughs> every ghoul that you've seen do this has escaped... <laughs> <laughs> has escaped their coffin. Yeah, yes. no, they Beatrix get waiting. out their way yeah. out. And yeah. it's just waiting. <laughs> They're like, when he pulls that dick out, yeah. it's done. <laughs> we can stop. Yeah. <laughs> With all the body parts. But all I'm body trying to say parts. is that ghouls are funny. Yeah. <laughs> and they work for what they want. Yes, yep. they plan ahead. That's right? the takeaway. That's the other lesson we can learn. <laughs> plan ahead and pee before you go. <laughs> pee before you leave. Strom unloads his weapon on the headstone until Newton stops him, telling him that this isn't the time to panic. If this isn't the time yeah. to panic, yeah. I, there is no time to panic. And can I ask why you're it's unloading? It's just an electrical storm. On the headstone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, storm. Not, that's, that's not even where he, he was came out of. Yeah. yeah. And what, come on, dude. What is that really going to do? Literally, Literally Yeah. <laughs> Strom asks, when is the time to panic? And suddenly dirt flies up from the ground. The grave is fully opened. And when the dust clears, Billy is in the casket, propped up on the ground. Behind him, with a partially rotted face and white eyes, stands Martin Ezekiel Morehouse. Good for him. Yes. Yeah. I did see they were talking about in the featurette that they had a, it was a gunshot that was supposed to be in Billy's chest, Mm -hmm. like a hole in his chest. And that when all the dirt flew everywhere, it got on the wound. Mm. And so it didn't look as obvious or as good as they wanted it. So they were disappointed. But I I mean, mean, I feel like a lot is happening right now visually. So it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You said he was holding his beating heart, correct? Oh yeah, I didn't. He's holding his his heart. Yeah, I think that's more important. Yeah, I, I guess that's the the hole in the chest. Oh yeah, yeah. But again, we're we're more we're surgical, more looking yeah. at the at the heart. Yes, yes, yeah. The heart of the matter. Yeah, ah, there you go. I, and and it does. I know we we've, we've said it, and you said how jarring it is that how the like the feeling of it goes. Yeah. But I will say, even watching this when I was younger, and I knew you know the commentary, or whatever. But seeing this, this dude used to creep the shit out of me. Oh yeah. yeah. I was like, fuck, you're scary, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's Let me crazy. tell you who did the makeup and effects for this segment because they tried to get a different studio to do it for each one. Oh. K and B. Oh. Oh, shit. Nice. Yeah. All right. I was like, my jaw dropped. Yeah. That's, it looks great. Yeah. It is a bummer to hear that a little bit because they had talked on commentary of a lot of things they had to cut from this segment. Ah. Uh, I guess uh, th- some things were too gory for the MPAA. Okay. Damn it. That I'd like sucks. to see that. I was yeah. going to say, yeah. I would love to get like a an extended or director's cut or whatever. Yeah probably not gonna happen at this yeah, point well, but. we'll see yeah like i have any pull right <laughs> let me let me make a few phone calls hey, right. hey rusty yeah no hey right. jake jake spingleton right. yeah <laughs> i heard i heard you have the masters that's our contact <laughs> yes <laughs> i say masters like it's music yeah. <laughs> But Newton empties his gun, firing at Martin, but Martin continues to stand above Billy's body, growling. Strom and Newton run back to the squad car, but despite Newton's best efforts, the car won't start. Martin runs up to the window, banging against it, but the car finally starts and they take off. Oh, don't leave now. We're no, yeah. Energy. I thought we were having a, a pee ago. party or whatever. Yeah. yeah. No, come no, back. Yeah. Come back. 
get those willies out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> none of that. Right, um, <laughs> rock out with the cock out, man. Oh, yeah. this is just that's what y'all wanted. Getting to be a, <laughs> a lot. Uh, did you say the part where they're running to their car and they're like, "Now's a good time yeah. to panic." Yeah, <laughs> that's that's very campy. <laughs> that's and, great. And that again, that fits more in tone with what I was what expecting. You're expecting. Right, right. Yeah. But um, that was fun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I liked that. But with their lights and sirens on, they fly down the street. Strom looks back and sees Martin walking casually on the street toward them. Newton asks how far behind he is. And when Strom turns back around, Martin is laying on the back of the car against the back window. He growls at them. Newton swerves the car wildly, trying to throw Martin off. And finally, he does. But when Martin lands on the street, he opens his eyes. Oh, I thought you were going to say he's going to get up all Terminator and run out. Yes. From <laughs> I thought. Or Homer Simpson. Yes, or Homer, yeah. <laughs> I thought that he was going to say, thanks for the ride, lady. Ah, all right. <laughs> because Tom Wright played the hitchhiker. Oh, oh shit. Okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Where's the oh, sign? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's like twice. They've, yeah. they've ghouled um, you yeah. and then now you're clinging to vehicles you know again. What? He's damn good at it. Yeah. yeah. He's damn good at oh, it. Oh, yeah. And you want to know something bonkers is uh, you can hear us talk about that on episode two. Yeah. <laughs> 160 <laughs> episodes ago. <laughs> oh, my God. We're so old. Yeah. <laughs> Strom grabs the radio, but Newton stops him. He yells at him, asking what exactly he plans to tell them, that a citizen they murdered came back and is trying to kill them. He tells Newton to use his head for once. He glances behind them and says that Martin is gone anyway. Come on, dude. Yeah. You really believe that? (laughs) When he turns back in front of them, Martin stands, staring at them. Newton screams, swerving all over the road and finally hitting a parked car, coming to a stop in the middle of the street. Strom asks where Martin is, and Newton says that he doesn't know. But suddenly, Martin's hands punch through the top of the car and grab Strom. He pulls him up, and Strom's body shakes. When he is dropped back down, he's headless. Newton jumps out of the car, and Martin stands on top of it, smiling as he holds out Strom's head. This is what I did here on that featurette. Part of it did get cut. Right. Strom's death was going to be way more gruesome. And um, they had to change it. And they had to get Robert Kurtzman to make that head extremely quickly. Yeah. Because they changed basically what was going to happen to Strom. This, to me, was an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. Because what I thought was going to happen was they were going to kill the two sides, side cops. Yeah. And then the biggest thing- was going to be reserved for Strom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because Strom, you know. Yeah. Um, no. No. <laughs> but you know what? Thinking about it that way, Strom is the the like head of it, you know. Uh-huh. But I feel like Newton because he tried to play that, you know. Oh, I'm a nice guy. I'm just a cop. Like we're supposed to protect each other. Blah blah blah. You don't yeah. break the code. He's almost worse. Yeah. Because Strom is just fucking evil. Newton yeah, knows yeah. better, but is choosing to participate and be complicit, as we've been saying. Yeah. I, I've seen this so much when this happened. I was, I was just, rip his fucking head off. Yeah. Well, I was just like, waiting for it. Yeah, then I'll tear his arms off. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that's another thing. Um, the names of every character seem to have some kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you look at Clarence, mm-hmm. Strom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's... They... He's, Cundiff has really improved since the days of, 
<laughs> the days of Jake Spingleton. <laughs> the days of Jake Spingleton sounds like a coming of age drama. <laughs> and I would watch it. <laughs> I feel like Laura Lenny in Primal Fear. I cannot get used to this name. <laughs> I just want to hear it over and over. <laughs> but Martin points at Newton and says, now you. Newton takes out his gun and shoots his car until it bursts into flames and he hears Martin's ghostly scream. I think the car was gonna about to explode <laughs> anyway. Ready. Yeah. Because I, I don't... I was like, well, is this GTA? That, that was my note. I was like, so this is GTA logic. If you just shoot at the car long enough, it's, it's just, gonna yeah, explode. Yeah, it's gonna burst into flames. She's a little health bar going away. It's like, almost. <laughs> Shit. Newton runs down the street but freezes when he comes to Martin's mural. He backs away from it, telling the painted Martin that he's dead. He stumbles into an alley of unhoused people, asking if they see Martin and admitting that he killed him. He laughs hysterically, but the people push him away and ignore him. Finally, he turns to see that Martin is standing right behind him. Martin smiles and lifts Newton up. He holds him above his head and laughs. When he brings Newton back down, Newton grabs his shirt and tears his chest away, revealing a cavity beneath, glowing green with bubbling liquid inside. Okay, so my thing is, that's just that's just a beaker of embalming fluid. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that's how that comes. No. Rusty kind of said that it was meant to be a crack pipe. Yeah, oh. that's what I figured. But he was like, but. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I okay, guess. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Mr. Sims. You just shove it in there. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta do better than that. That's not how that, that it doesn't go there. <laughs> Martin growls and Newton runs away past a pile of syringes. Martin telepathically raises the syringes and stabs them through Newton's back. Newton stumbles and falls against a cross on a mural. Martin continues to work the syringes with his mind, using them to crucify Newton to the cross, stabbing him through his wrists, hands, and chest before finally driving one down his throat. Newton screams, decomposes, and melts before our eyes before being resurrected as a mural of himself, a bleeding and screaming officer crucified with syringes. Martin welcomes him to his world. So, just a couple things. Mm -hmm. One, I want to really commend the effects work in that. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. the gradual decomposition of his face, mm -hmm. it looks, it, it's very gradual. And it starts, it looks like it starts with his face. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's pretty well done. Um, one minor complaint. Yes. I understand what he's saying that he is a memory now he's memorialized and now the officer is the same fate, but it would have been more effective to me if somebody had said, welcome to my world to Martin earlier. Oh yeah. Cause, so it's right. like, Cause he says it like it's a callback and yeah, everybody's like, okay, I don't, okay, yeah. I, don't you, get it. I never, <laughs> I never said that That's to you. <laughs> Clarence comes to him and asks if he's satisfied. Martin grabs Clarence by his throat and asks him where he was when he needed him. He drops Clarence to the ground and suddenly Clarence is wrapped in a straight jacket and a padded cell. He mutters that he's sorry and pleads with Martin not to hurt him. Two orderlies look at Clarence through a small window in the door. Cell orderly one, played by Don Dow, asks Clarence's story. Cell Orderly 2, played by Moon Jones, says that Clarence is a cop killer. He killed three in one night, and the real trip is he used to be a cop himself. The first orderly says that you just never know. They walk away from the cell, leaving Martin muttering and alone. I want to say, first of all, brilliant match cut yeah. mm -hmm. of dropping him and then finding him in the cell. Mm -hmm. 
but they had said that the shot through the bars that came through to find the orderlies there, mm. they said there were more takes of that shot than any shot in the film. Wow. They said the idea of it was obviously just to follow with one fluid motion. Yeah. But they were either knocking the door, knocking the camera. Damn. And it took forever. But it's a very effective moment. It is. And it's nice as well for, I guess, everybody to get their comeuppance in a way. Yeah. Well, uh, Cundiff had said that people had asked, like, Clarence didn't participate like why was he being punished and kind of said that when when you decide to do what's right is important because there are consequences to when you choose to do that yeah and it's like not wrong yeah Yeah. not wrong at all where's the lie yeah so did this really happen or did he do it because the orderlies are like he he murdered three cops in, in one my night. in my mind it really happened See, that's and it, what I it think. shook out that it look it looks like clarence did it because okay, who's gonna believe okay, that good because that's what i thought a yeah. dead man came from his you know uh-huh. well let's look at the mural if there's a cop on there then yeah, I think we, gotta, then yeah that's <laughs> we might have a new yeah. there's evidence right there <laughs> back at the funeral home as mr sims leads the men down a hallway he comments again that clarence went insane Ball agrees, but Bulldog says that the officers just got what they had coming. Stack is in disbelief that the story was even real. But stopping in front of a curtain, Mr. Sims tells them that reality is just a matter of perception. He dramatically pulls a cord and the curtains open, kind of revealing them to be back where they started in front of a closed casket. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is another room, but it looks exactly the same. And they're like, (laughs) (laughs) and Mr. Sims continues that reality and perception are a cornucopia of clashing divergent ideas. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Yes. Ballstack and Bulldog are all uncomfortable as they listen and follow Mr. Sims up to the casket. Mr. Sims opens it and all three men react in shock, asking what happened to him. Stack asks if they can just get the shit and go. (laughs) But Mr. Sims tells him, no, they're going to want to hear about this one because it's a classic case of what is and isn't real in the mind of a boy named Walter. He repeats Walter's name as we segue into a little boy's bedroom. I just want to say very quickly, um, they're very, very, very about this deal. Yeah. Because for me personally, if he were to tell me this story over the body of Clarence, that he's like, no, it was Morehouse's ghost. Yeah. Um, that's terrifying. Yeah. And I don't need to be here anymore. No. And can you stop showing us bodies? Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's where I'm at. Yeah. We didn't sign up for a tour. No. Nope. This wasn't like. No. And now you're moving rooms uh, in ways that I can't quite understand. I'm ready to leave. I want to go. It's not worth yes. the shit, as it's we've right. said. Let us out. <laughs> real quick before we move on uh, i want to talk about deandre bonds he's uh he's been in a lot of stuff too he was in gangster squad dope the wood father stew with uh mark Wahlberg. (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) yeah like i said and and he's another guy that i've seen you know what i mean off and on and it's like man these guys even if they're playing like little side parts or whatever they're still steady and stuff just constantly there one thing you love is seeing character actors just pop up yeah like we were just talking about Dwayne whitaker yeah Um, yeah there's somebody that pops up in the last segment uh again yeah and we're like you know it's just so cool yeah But as we segue into the bedroom, that begins the segment, Boys Do Get Bruised. Walter Johnson, played by Brandon Hammond, sits up in his bed and scans the room with his flashlight. 
When his light hits a doorknob, a ferocious growling starts on the other side of the door. Walter looks fearful as the growling intensifies and the door handle twists back and forth. There's a very great match cut with this doorknob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we match cut to the doorknob of a classroom as the bell rings and Walter steps inside, followed by Richard Garvey, played by Rusty Cundiff. Yeah. He introduces Walter to the rest of the class and they reply flatly in unison, greeting him. The way they say, hello, Walter. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, they're going to be kicking my I'm ass. Just, yeah. like, Can I five minutes. schools already? <laughs> um, I did read, or no, I heard on the commentary, Cundiff said if he, in retrospect, had thought about it, he wouldn't have cast himself in this role. Yeah. He said that he had so much difficulty trying to coordinate everything else going on. Oh, I wow. bet. And it, I guess he appeared in a role in his previous film. Right. But in this one, he said that he had no rehearsal time. In the feature, he talked about the inspiration for this segment. It was mm-hmm. something that happened to him as a child. And we can talk about it at the end because I don't want to spoil anything. But in my mind, me being me, I'm like, I bet he cast himself in this role to compensate for the way he felt when he was a kid. Okay. All right. And so that's why, to me, I was like, wow, that's that's very deep that that is the role that he played in this film but we'll mm. talk about we'll talk about that when we get to it okay was there a reason they had to just jump into it or well he was spending so much time with preparation for other things especially some of the special effects that we'll see in this uh segment uh-huh. that whenever everybody else was doing these rehearsals he was preoccupied okay and so, so he kind of just had yeah. to show up and but i think he does a good job yeah, yeah and as the, the cool. as the director and the writer you know what you want from the character yeah, so yeah. i mean you know. i'm me yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we immediately cut to recess where the kids form a circle and taunt walter so what y'all said of course <laughs> they push him around calling him a punk before one kid ty played by chris edwards pushes him to the ground and starts beating him up The other kids crowd around and cheer until Richard runs over and breaks up the fight, telling everyone to get back to class. I do want to say Richard's hair is very cool. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of mine now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's not like a, uh, you know. (laughs) You like your hair. I like my hair. I feel good about me. Good. (laughs) Is he the only teacher there? Yeah, everybody like, yeah. Just, yeah, just they're, letting it happen. If those kids wanted to beat his ass, they could have jumped him. Like, where's the other <laughs> teachers? I don't, I don't know. The other teachers are like, I got $5 yeah, on Walter. Oh, why'd you stop it? <laughs> what are you? Yeah. Bet on the underdog. <laughs> he grabs Walter and Ty, telling Ty that he must really like detention before leading them both inside. In the nurse's office, Nurse Parchman, played by Takia Crystal Kima, gives Walter an ice pack for his head. Richard comes in to check on him and she says Walter has a thick head and he'll be fine. But she is concerned about his black eye. Richard asks if Ty hit him in the eye and Walter quietly shakes his head. The nurse says that it's not a fresh bruise. She can tell by the coloring that it's a couple days old. Richard confirms with Walter again that it wasn't Ty that did it and asks who did. He asks if it was one of the other boys and Walter just looks down. Richard comes over and sits next to him and gently asks if someone at home did this to him. When he asks if it was Walter's mother, he shakes his head. He asks if it was his father and Walter tells him that his father is dead. Richard apologizes and says that if Walter could just tell him and Nurse Parchman, it'll be their little secret. Walter says it was the monster that came after his dad died. 
Richard and Nurse Parchman exchange a look, and Richard tells Walter that if he ever wants to talk about what really happened, he'll be here to listen. Walter gets up to leave, but before he walks out the door, he tells Richard that he said no one would believe him. He leaves without another word. Well, I'm sure, I mean, they're they're like, well, he's... A this kid. is a yeah, he's a yeah. kid. This is a way to cope with what's going on, or like a reason. Yeah, you know? and honestly, being a horror anthology, this is a very interesting setup. Yeah. Yes, because you assume it's a monster. Yeah, like a fairy well, and, tale monster. And yeah, what did we yeah. see at the top of the segment? A monster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying to get into his room. Exactly. Yeah. But that night, we approach Walter's house and hear the sound of growling again. He sits up in his bed, armed with his flashlight and crying as the growling continues. So once again, everything is shot like a nightmare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you realize and there's something that they talk about later as far as wanting uh, to further get inside the head and mind of Walter. Right. They wanted to shoot this entire segment in POV. Oh, wow. Oh, all right. And so we do get some shots later that are shot from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But doing it this way, it, everything feels uh, larger yeah. mm -hmm. inside the mind of a child. Yeah. And they said that the actor, uh, the child actor, when you see him crying, those are real tears. Oh. <laughs> they said that they um, asked him, they were like, can you cry on cue or do you want us to? He goes, oh, no, I can do it. Watch. And just does it. <laughs> And, <laughs> shit. He and he's so it. cute. Yeah. It's very sad. It's it's hard. This, yeah. this segment is a lot. Yes. But the door thumps against the toy chest that barricades it. The fact that a toy chest is barricading the door already is devastating. Mm -hmm. But the doorknob continues to twist and Walter watches fearfully as the door is hit hard enough for the toys in his room to shake. He whispers, mommy, as the door opens wider and wider, little by little with each thud. Finally, the door swings open and a monstrous and clawed hand reaches inside. The growling gets louder and Walter sobs as he closes his eyes and lays down in bed. Oh, so no, there's a real monster. It's yeah. a monster. Yeah, see, exactly. a monster. Yeah. Yes. In class, all of the students turn in papers at Richard's desk. As Walter sets his paper down, Richard stops him, noticing fresh bruises on his wrist. Walter merely tells him he's back. In the nurse's office, Nurse Parchman wraps Walter's wrist. That night, from the outside of Walter's house, we hear the monster growling and Walter sobbing inside. Over this, we see his drawing of the monster in his house, green with huge red glowing eyes and a huge mouth with sharp teeth. Back at school, while the other kids are at recess, Walter sits at his desk drawing. The picture he drew of the monster sits there. Richard comes in and asks if Walter didn't want to go outside, but Walter doesn't need to answer. When Richard notices the picture, Walter tells him that that's the monster. Richard sits down and looks it over. Walter says that Lori, the girl that sits behind him, told Walter to draw the monster and then burn the paper. Then the monster would go away. Walter says that he's going to burn him up. This is uh, foreshadowing? Yeah. Yeah. He continues that Lori's mom told her that if she's afraid of something, draw it and then destroy the paper and it'll go away. Richard looks through the stack of drawings, more monsters, and then he gets to one of Ty. Richard asks if he can talk to Walter's mother about the monster, but Walter says his mother isn't trying to hear it because they've already moved once. Richard levels with him that drawing the pictures isn't going to be the answer to his problem, but he thinks they can work something out together. Walter reluctantly agrees, and Richard leaves, promising to see him after recess. 
As he leaves, he accidentally knocks a picture of Ty to the ground. Walter picks it up and crumples it into a ball. As he does so, we hear a boy scream. Okay, so just a couple things here. Um, first of all, Corman's calamity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that rem- I didn't say earlier, but the um, bedroom nightmare situation. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was an homage to 1963, The Haunting. Oh, okay. I thought that was very interesting. But um, the scream, they said, were they were kind of afraid, I guess, <laughs> that people wouldn't understand the connection between the two scenes without this scream. But it's so clear. It's- yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's painted. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's very, I don't understand. But it's the same with, um, why is he walking in a cemetery? It's, well, because, yeah. <laughs> because he's, he's following... <laughs> You know, sometimes pay attention. Pay attention. Test audiences are it's frightening <laughs> how much they don't understand about film. It's it's upsetting actually yeah. because it's so clear here. And that makes sense, I guess. I mean the paper drawing thing. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I you know. I still believe like that's a way to release things yeah. and whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, it's the same. It's like uh, writing letters and not sending them. Yeah, yeah, yeah for know, sure. It's therapeutic. And that kid shouldn't have been bullying that. No, he kid. shouldn't. No, he shouldn't. But outside at recess, Ty is rushed into an ambulance on a stretcher. But, yeah. <laughs> Again, I, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty clear connection. <laughs> Richard comes over and asks what happened. And he's told that Ty was playing inside and fell down the stairs. Richard asks if he was pushed. And the other teacher tells him, no, Ty just collapsed. It didn't make sense either. Because how do you break both arms and legs falling down the stairs? He surmises that Ty must have weak bones. Is that your diagnosis? I, yeah. I'm not a doctor. He's like, Ty's like, but I always drink plenty of milk. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, the thing for me as well is how funny the line is. Boy must have had weak, <laughs> yeah. weak bones. No, it's great. How about the fact that we just saw him crumble? Yeah. Like a piece of paper, maybe? I paused the movie. I was like, really, dude? Yeah, I was like, damn, that's wild. That's wild. You know, all in a day's work. Yeah. Now let's go back to class, kids. Kids who weren't crumpled like a piece of paper. Kids that don't have weak bones. But we pan up the building and see Walter watching all of this from the window. That night, Walter watches from his bedroom window as Richard climbs the steps to his house. He's greeted at the door by Sissy Johnson, played by Paula J. Parker. Richard identifies himself as Walter's teacher and asks to talk to her. A piece of paper falls when the door opens and Richard picks it up for her as Sissy, who is wearing a robe, smiles at him flirtatiously. He asks to come inside and she leaves to go put some clothes on. As Richard waits on the porch, a bird poops on his shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it's supposed to be good luck. Yeah, Yeah, it is. So I've heard. I don't. Not for the jacket, no. but for you. And right. an- another, the wearer of the jacket. Yeah. <laughs> another wonderful actress. Yes. She was mm-hmm. in Hustle and Flow. She was in Friday. Yeah. Wasn't she in uh, The Way Phone Booth. Yeah. Phone Booth, High Crimes. Like, again. Yeah. That, that, I mean, this movie's stacked. Yeah. yeah. Inside, Sissy takes a towel and cleans it off of Richard's shoulder as he tells her that he thinks that Walter is having problems, possibly from just having switched schools. Sissy says that all kids have problems because that's just what life is, problems. Richard says that Walter comes to school with a lot of bruises, but his mother says that Walter's always falling and she doesn't know where the bruises come from, but it's not her. She's still being very flirty and seems unbothered. Mm Mm-hmm. 
When the door to the kitchen creaks, Richard sees that Walter is peeking in on them and spotted Walter leaves. Richard continues that Walter has a preoccupation with monsters, specifically one that he says lives in the house. At the mention of this monster, Sissy throws the towel and yells out for Walter. Richard says that there's no need to bring him into this, but Sissy is pissed now, saying that she's told Walter about telling these stories. She continues to yell for her son, and Richard says that he just came to talk to her, but Walter quietly steps into the room and Sissy yanks him in. She holds his face and asks him what the hell his problem is telling these crazy stories. She asks him, didn't she tell him to stop with this? A horn honks outside and Sissy rushes Walter out, telling him to go to his room. Richard tries to talk to her, but Sissy tells him that she's got to deal with this and for Richard to stay quiet and not say anything. Walter sits on the stairs watching as Carl, played by David Allen Greer, comes inside, unhappy with Sissy for not opening the door for him. (laughs) This casting. Yeah. It's intentional. Yeah. And effective. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because holy shit. You do not expect... You know, and honestly, that's part of uh, Cundiff's message. Yeah. Is what we're about to see is not something you can perceive looking at a person. Of course yeah. not. And he also said as well um, how nice the house is. Mm-hmm. He said that was intentional as well because you could have gone the stereotypical route. Yeah. Yeah. Of a specific style of house. Yeah. 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 Um, a certain level of dysfunction. Mm-hmm. But no. Yeah. This yeah. can happen anywhere. Yep. Anytime. Spotting Richard behind her, Carl asks who he is. When Sissy says that he's one of Walter's teachers, Carl steps to him, asking if they've got a problem. Sissy steps between them and assures Carl that there's no problem. Richard just came to drop off some homework. This is the POV banister shot. Yeah. Yeah. That is what what the whole thing was supposed to be. That's interesting. All right. I feel like I I really like what we got, but I would be interested to see it that way. Yeah. yeah. It would change a lot. Yeah. Uh-huh. Richard is not playing along, though, and says that there are actually a few small problems that deserve some attention. Carl just walks into the kitchen and Sissy shoots Richard a look before they follow him. I feel like read the room. Yeah. Yeah. I just came to drop off some homework. Here's my card. You know what I mean? Right. Something is clearly wrong. Something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why she didn't open the door for you. You're fucking asshole, dude. Yeah. <laughs> You're a piece of shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sitting at the table with Richard, Carl says that Walter has only been at the school for a few weeks and he has trouble making friends, but he wants to know what problems Richard is talking about. Before Richard can respond, Sissy gives him a look as she sets down drinks in front of him and Carl. He doesn't take the hint and immediately says that aside from the bruises, Walter is disturbed by a monster that he claims lives in the house. He tells Carl that he even drew a picture of it, and we hear growling as he pulls it from his bag and slides it to Carl. Carl puts on his glasses to inspect the picture as Richard continues that Walter is convinced that he needs to kill the monster. He says that Walter really believes this. Sissy looks uneasy as Carl firmly tells Richard that he will talk to Walter. Richard is unsatisfied with this, but Carl just tells Sissy to show Richard the door. Finally taking the hint, Richard grabs his bag and follows Sissy into the living room. Alone at the table, Carl rolls up his sleeves and looks at the picture. Sissy takes Richard to the door and snaps at Walter to go to his room when she sees him still sitting on the stairs. Richard tries to talk to her, but she cuts him off and just tells him to go. He does, and Walter watches him from his window as Richard gets into his car. The door thuds behind him as it opens and the monster's shadow falls upon him. 
In a growling voice, the monster asks if he likes to draw fucked up pictures of people. But when we finally see what is casting this horrific shadow, it's Carl. I will say this reveal was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it takes it from um, something that we thought at the beginning was probably supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. Is not at all. Yeah. And it goes into what Cundiff said about the real world being scarier than ghosts and all that. I did want to talk about the way they cast this shadow because they had an entire elaborate idea. They built a whole monster suit and everything. Oh, wow. And then the second they get the shadow to cast, it's just a blob against the wall. No! Yeah. (laughs) And so that plan didn't work at all. And so they changed course. And it's really just, you had said you had heard on the featurette. Yeah. um, They had said that it was a polyfoam casting of something that we see later. Okay. Um, that David Allen Greer is just holding up over his face. And then when they <laughs> changed the angle to do the reveal, he's just tossed it to the side. Yeah. And it worked. It does. It do- yeah. I know this is a bad time or whatever, but it's very funny the way he says, uh, you like to draw fucked up pictures of people. This was something me and my brother used to say to each other. And not necessarily when we were mad at each other, but like, you know what I mean? It was like, we would just like, oh, okay, whatever, dude. Uh-huh. Uh, that that sentence is hilarious. Yeah. It, <laughs> I bet it's like the you get, and then it's like, oh, oh fuck. Yeah, like, like, oh, nothing man, will be funny yeah. ever again. <laughs> because I literally, I'm in my notes, and when we're talking about the fucked up pictures and everything, I'm like, you know, the picture wasn't that bad. He gave you abs, you know, kind of. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of ripped. <laughs> I would yeah, yeah. be like, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what if I'm green? I have, um, and I'm in the best shape of my life. Yeah, and it, this is this is the jarring thing I'm talking about with the tonal shifts. Yeah. yeah, because we're you know, and then the second it goes from here, yeah, there is nothing. No, no, even remote, yeah, and so it 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 gives you your heart. It, it's hard. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. And this is about to get really rough. Yes. Walter sinks down on the floor, frozen with fear, and when Sissy comes in and tries to stop Carl, he hits her in the face repeatedly as Walter watches. Outside, Richard goes to start his car, but he hesitates. Inside, Carl takes his belt off and beats Sissy in front of Walter, saying that he's going to teach them both respect. Um, Kind of had said that this belt was made of foam. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it didn't hurt. Paula J. Parker at all, mm-hmm. but kind of said when they originally shot this, it went on for so long. Um, it was incredibly long. Yeah. And the audiences that they showed it to, he's talking shit as he's hitting her, and they're laughing at David Allen Greer. And then the laughing tapers off, and then everyone is just sitting in silence. Like it was that long that we're being forced to kind of suffer through this with her yeah. and with Walter. And he was told to to shorten it. I honestly think what we have is hard enough to watch. Yeah, yeah, he thinks that it loses the gravity of what he had envisioned because he said it went on for a very, very long time. I can understand his vision, but also some it, it's, it's I got the point. Yeah, I, he I the got point, the point. And I yeah. wasn't I, I didn't find it particularly funny Not when at all. he's beating no. her. But, no. you know. And I'm like, I'm a nervous laughter, definitely. Yeah. But this was like, and then the kids, right? I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's, it's it's very no, fucked up. Yeah. But he said that that was the reaction that uh, they laughed and then the laughing slowly stopped and then everyone is just sitting silently staring at mm-hmm. this. And I mean, again, like you said, I get the, I get the intention and I get the point and I think the gravity is still uh, conveyed. It's still here. Yeah. 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 
Walter buries his head in his hands as he sobs, but Richard can hear Sissy screaming outside. When he looks up at the window, he can clearly see the silhouette of Carl abusing her. Walter runs down the stairs, but Carl is close on his tail and Sissy is right behind him. Richard sprints up the stairs to the house and bangs on the door, but Carl has already caught Walter and holds him by his ear in the kitchen. He brandishes the drawing at Walter, yelling at him for drawing a picture to make him look like a monster. We see the word monster is tattooed on his arm. That, I think, even Cundiff said on commentary, he's like, maybe too we, much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> no, we got, we get we understand. it. Yeah, we there's, get it. There's yeah. no need for this tattoo. Well, d- the way I looked at it was that's where he got it from. But oh, I, the little boy. Yeah, I, I get that. I just feel like his behavior is more than enough. No, yeah, but I mean, it, like I said, if it's that's, you know what I mean? There's yeah. a monster that lives there. Well, that's him. You yeah. know what I mean? I guess. It's like, but, but it, why are you I mean, mad? Because you, like, you put that on that your arm. Yeah. Also true. I don't know. I don't know. But Carl's voice distorts into a growl and he knocks Walter to the ground. Sissy lets Richard inside as Carl attacks Walter in the kitchen. Richard comes in and tries to swing at Carl, but he misses and Carl quickly gains the upper hand. Sissy comes in screaming and Walter hides beneath the table as the fight continues. Finally, Carl knocks Richard down against the stove and kicks him in the face. He overturns the table that Walter hides beneath, knocking his monster portrait onto the ground. He attacks Sissy again when she tries to keep him from Walter, but she comes back at him with a pan. He takes it from her, but in the moment he is distracted from Walter, Walter spots the monster drawing. He picks up the paper, and just as Carl raises his arm to hit Sissy with the pan, Walter folds the paper over the arm. Carl's arm distorts unnaturally, and his leg does the same when Walter folds the paper again. He finally crumples it, and Carl's body pretzels into itself, and he collapses on the floor, screaming. Um, In the featurette, they mentioned that Screaming Mad George did the effects, Hmm. and that when we see what Carl has been reduced to on the floor. I mean, this is multiple people's bodies. This is like a false floor with one person's arm sticking up, <laughs> one person's leg sticking up, oh, wow. David <laughs> Allen Greer's head sticking yeah, up. Yeah. I mean, it is like, it is wild to look at. Yeah. They had talked about on commentary that when his arm bends, mm-hmm. yeah. the audience just cheers every time. Well, yeah, hell, like, yeah. It's fantastic to see, again, come up and... Yeah. Um, they did talk about that like four foot floor they built yeah. to fit everything. And it's just like, you don't think about all that needs to be done to accomplish what we see on film yeah. Yeah. sometimes. And it's just remarkable. And kind of had talked about the, he wanted to make a comment about man's evil versus supernatural's evil mm-hmm. and said that in this film, the real evil is man and the supernatural intervention is redemption. Right. And having that in mind, it's like, yeah yeah i mean and that's a theme throughout yeah i enjoyed when he twisted the paper and he fucking spun him around Uh uh-huh yeah i was like that is what you get fucker it is what he gets he had to be put down man he was out of control he was and now one thing i do want to say is that um richard is probably like walter killed that boy yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i can't tell you're putting the pieces together (laughs) yeah Richard blinks in disbelief as he watches this, but Walter keeps destroying the paper until Carl is nothing but a jumble of limbs with his head in the middle. 
he promises Sissy that this isn't over, but Walter tosses the paper on the ground and Sissy says that she thinks it is as she stomps down on it and blood sprays her. Carl goes quiet, finally vanquished. Sissy comforts her son and asks Richard what they should do because no one is going to believe them. Richard tells her not to worry because no one is going to find out anything. In all honesty, all you had to say, I believe, officer, he had weak bones. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, that's a a common uh, diagnosis in this town. Open and shut case. (laughs) (laughs) But Richard turns on a flame on a burner on the stove and tells Walter that he knows what to do. Walter drops the balled up picture into the fire and they watch as Carl's body is engulfed by flames. Now, Cundiff had said that once again, yay, you know, yeah. rest oh, no, in yeah. peace or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you want to do. Mm. Um, Cundiff had said that when he was a little boy, like little, right. he was playing at his friend's house, a neighbor, and they were walking downstairs and he looked into a room and saw the friend's little sister hogtied um, with like a gag in her mouth. And he was like, what is going on? And his friend was like, oh, she's in trouble. Yeah. And so he went home and told his dad, the detective, and his dad said, I can't say nothing about that white family. He's like, I can't say nothing about them. And so it went unreported. Jesus. And so that's why in my mind, him casting himself as the guy that comes in and saves this little boy from the monster. Like, I wonder if that was something of redemption for him to act that out right but maybe i'm applying too much to it but no yeah it's, I mean, that's, that's fucking, crazy that's a nightmare that's yeah. horrible that's traumatizing to everyone involved but yeah that was the inspiration for this story what the fuck that's really awful yeah yeah back at sim's funeral home we see carl's charred and twisted body in the casket mr sim confirms that walter did in fact kill the monster Again, if I'm (laughs) who, Mr. Sims, one question. Who told you that story? (laughs) Literally. How have you shared it with us? Yeah. Why have you shared it with us? That's the question. Yeah, Yeah, that's the real question. None of us needed to know that. And why is this door locked? (laughs) (laughs) He walks away from the casket and ignores Ball when he asks if it was true. Stack slams the lid of the casket down, but this causes a doll that was propped up on the other side of the room to fall onto the floor. Mr. Sims picks the doll up and Ball asks if dead people are playing with dolls now. He says that they are, but this doll is a way station for lost souls. And the dog goes, ha ha, because it looks like Will Smith. Really? (laughs) Did it not? I mean, it kind of did. It looked exactly like Will Smith. I wouldn't say exactly. It, okay. <laughs> I was literally, I swear to God, when I was watching the featurette, waiting for somebody to be like, oh, and he's friends with Will Smith. So like, <laughs> I was like, so he's friends. I, yeah. <laughs> this was a nod to his friend, Will Smith or whatever. Yeah. From, in 95, he wasn't Will Smith, you know. No, but he was already famous. That's what I'm yeah, saying. All right. So did you think he was going to voice the yeah. dog? <laughs> <laughs> what were you expecting? I just thought that it was modeled after him. All right. I was all right. sure yeah. that it was modeled right. after Well, you sound very certain. I'll give you that. <laughs> I got no confirmation. Oh, okay. I did... Um, the second the doll fell off the thing, mm-hmm. yeah. I was like, okay, now it's an anthology 
because there's always got to be a little thing attacking something. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, for oh, sure. No, the yeah. roaches and creep show, the Zuni, Zuni fetish. fetish. Yeah. I'm like, now we got a ball game. <laughs> <laughs> now we got that middle story. Exactly. Yeah. You need it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but Mr. Sims continues that sometimes when a person's body has been through a lot, their soul is displaced and the doll is a place for souls to stay until they can move on. Ball asks if he's being for real, and Mr. Sims screams, yes! <laughs> well, why? Everything we've heard tonight. I was going to yeah. say, all the shit I've already told you and it's you're like, asking. If- but that's bullshit, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everything else I'll believe, but this is the one you're making up, right? This is going to be in your short storybook, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. He says that he found the doll in a house in the South and that it's an amazing thing. Before we move on, talk about Joe Torrey. Again, our trio, man. These guys. Yeah. He was in Poetic Justice. He did. He was in Sprung House Party. He did some NCIS. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I know uh, you like that. I'm a fan of the crime shows. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been established. Yeah. It has. <laughs> but we fade out from the doll into the story, KKK Comeuppance. A pair of hands sort through mail, going past an envelope marked final notice and settling on a rejection letter. A voiceover says that things like affirmative action, quotas, and reparations all mean that another qualified person won't be getting the job or education only because they're not the right color. The hands frustratedly tear up the letter and we see a photo of Duke Metger, played by Corbin Burnson, standing in front of an American flag. The voice continues that that's what we're supposed to be getting away from. It induces Duke Metger for governor, an original American. Isn't it about time? Okay. <laughs> the name? Yeah, we got yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So obviously, <Jake. laughs> yeah. yeah. This, is, this is the mashing of two scumbag pieces of shit yeah. into yeah. one name. Uh-huh. Um, also, Cundiff said on commentary that they almost got into trouble because the political ad that they did to show how much of a piece of shit this guy is. Yeah was too close to a real from a real candidate and they almost got in trouble that's crazy and so i mean that if that doesn't say that's so disheartening yeah (laughs) but unanimous right fuck this guy absolutely yeah thousand percent i honestly think that that it minorly hurts the segment how much i hate this guy yeah Yeah. because i'm like no get to the yeah Yeah, get Get, get Get his ass Metger watches this on a TV, giving his approval and saying that even he would vote for him. Rhodey, played by Roger Ginver Smith, says that when he's done, Metger might even walk away with a few black votes. Metger says he'd be happy with just getting them off his lawn because it's starting to look like a minstrel show. This, every line out of this motherfucker's mouth. I was yeah. appalled. This entire Hell segment, yeah. I was... Uh, pretty appalled it's yeah. and i gotta tell you at the beginning of this i thought that roadie was gonna play a certain role and he does not no, no it's not <laughs> just hold on do you remember him he in was yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course him and daniel robot of course chasing after poor alex browning <laughs> <laughs> did nothing i swear i just saw it happen <laughs> sure you did kid whatever sit down <laughs> But Metger continues his bullshit as he peeks out at the protesters outside by saying that if they were as committed to finding a job as they were to hounding him, it would put an end to welfare. Literally everything out of his mouth, I was like, that's worse than the last thing he yeah, said. It just, yeah. It's unfucking believable The protesters insist that Duke must go. 
An anchor woman, Lonnie, played by Erica Hansen, stands in front of them, explaining that the black and Jewish communities share in their concern for the candidacy of Duke Medgar. She reveals him to be a one-time Klan member. She interviews Councilman Rogers, played by Tim Hutchinson, asking him about something else that has sparked anger in the black community. Rogers says that it's upsetting enough that Medgar would come here with the intent on gaining racist votes, but the real slap in the face to the black community is that he chose a former plantation to set up camp. Just horrible. Lonnie asks if there's anything that can be done, but before Rogers can answer, Eli, played by Art Evans, runs over. He says that they're going to make him pay for being here. And when Lonnie asks who they are, Eli says the souls will make him pay. Miss Cobbs is the keeper of the souls and there's no peace in the dollhouse now. Okay, so I just want to say thank you for telling us everything. everything. <laughs> <laughs> like you laid out everything. And it's so funny to me because later on uh, they do explain it. Yeah. And it's like, no, you've explained it. We don't it. need yeah. you told us we don't don't everything. That. You can just look at the mural and we understand. <laughs> but uh, they, it just made me laugh this scene. Lonnie asks about the dollhouse and Eli just repeats that the dollhouse will make him pay. Rogers addresses that the dollhouse is a myth around here, but Eli insists that it's not a myth. He turns toward Medgar's home and yells that Medgar stares at Eli from the window and tells him to go away. I have to call that out <laughs> <laughs> because he says, go away, old man who I can't hear yeah, <laughs> and can barely see through yeah. from this far, far, far away window. That lawn is sprawling. The, yeah. you, he didn't see any of that shit. Well, he's look, you were warned, fuck face, all right? So yeah. Yeah. You, Honestly, whatever, yeah, whether you heard it or not, you, yeah. were, you, you have were been warned. Whatever happens, happens. Yes. Rody asks why he's so worked up about the house. And <laughs> so they did hear him. So <laughs> yeah. It's like we put microphones in the fence. We want to know what's going on. <laughs> but Medgar explains that after the Civil War, Nathan Wilkes owned this house. Wilkes was upset that his slaves were going to go free. So when they tried to leave, he snapped and massacred them. He describes lynchings and burnings, citing a tree outside that had 12 bodies hanging from it. He laments that Wilkes was buried in a common grave on the hill. He says that people think the souls never rested. He points to a mural of Miss Cobbs, a voodoo priestess who bought the place and put the souls to rest. In the mural, Miss Cobbs sits with the doll from the Sims funeral home in her lap and a bunch of dolls surrounding her. Rhodey asks what they are and Medgar identifies that they're dolls that Miss Cobbs transferred the souls of the slaves into. He says the word is that they remain in the house to this day. Rody asks if Medgar has ever seen them, but Medgar says that he searched every inch of the house in hopes of finding the dolls and selling them, but he never found even one. He says that people feel that the house should remain empty in remembrance to what happened to let the souls rest. He likens it to an old Nazi camp, but he says that he personally feels like it adds to the Southern charm of the house. I think to me, knowing the history of it yeah, and still... But you know what? There are certain people, and I say this as a person that lives in the South, when people say Southern, you know what the fuck they mean. Oh, of and course. And that's, yeah. that's, that's that. That's that shit. And I don't like it. No. 
Rhodey rightfully tells Medgar that he's a sick fuck, and Medgar admits that perhaps he is, but he reminds Rhodey that he makes $10,000 a week as his image maker, and it's his job to change that and soften his hard edges. It's Rhodey's job to make him a respectable man of the people, and they both chuckle that he's got his work cut out for him. I and it sucks because I was like, why are you working for him? Yeah. yeah. And then you hear ten thousand dollars a week and you're like, why are you working for him? Yeah. yeah. That's still not worth Yeah. No, fuck. Well, that's no. why I'm yeah. like, I'm sure I know who Rody's gonna be. Yeah. Yeah. What this is gonna become. Nope. But yeah, hold please. He says that the first thing they'll work on is his defensive media skills. He tells Medgar that when he gets in front of the cameras, he's always got to expect the unexpected. Before he can finish his thought, he turns as if he's been interrupted and looks at the mural of Miss Cobbs. He remarks to Medgar that the mural is kind of creepy, but Medgar throws his arm over him and vows to have the whole thing painted over after the election. Rhodey reminds him that he's got to win the election first. Medgar leaves the room, but the smile drops from Rhodey's face as he looks up again at the mural of Miss Cobbs and her dolls. You know you're doing wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know that's why you and feel that way. And she's looking at yeah. him like, are you fucking serious? Yeah. And I do have to say, they talked about it on the commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, the perspective shot from the mural looking down on them. Yeah. yeah. That's a bit prescient as well. Yeah. Because it's like, I see you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're about to hear about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I did want to shout out Tracy Singleton because Cundiff said that she was the official art director of the film. Oh, wow. And she painted this mural. Wow. Oh, nice. But we pan down to the floor as Rhodey walks out of the room and we see that underneath the floorboards is the doll that Mr. Sims had at the funeral home. It made me think of the Simpsons when they did yeah. the, <laughs> the, the, the layers. Yeah. yeah. There's always something under their house. Yeah. But practicing his skills in front of the camera, Rhodey films as Medgar says that he has a lot to offer all of the constituents, not only the white ones. They were talking about the set because you see all the pillars and everything. Yeah. Um, it was just funny the way that kind of described it. He goes, all those pillars, <laughs> he goes, all those pillars are made of foam. They couldn't hold up an ant. And I was like, that's very <laughs> interesting. Ant. <laughs> One ant. And so, I mean, it's just built. They just crumble? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh, but One ant? Yeah. <laughs> but they're um, convincing. Yeah, they yeah. are. I, they, that didn't stick out yeah. to me. Not at all. It's a very good production design. Yeah. But Rhodey asks if that means that voters shouldn't be concerned with his past affiliation with the KKK. Medgar says that we all have a past. Rhodey stops him right there. He says that Medgar is coming off way too defensive, like he has something to hide. He hands the camera over to Medgar and tells him to watch him. With a smile, Rhodey says that we all have a past, but it's a better man that can learn from his failures. He's learned from his and he's better for it. Medgar asks, what about the house? Rhodey says that it's unfair to judge him or anyone else for the deeds of their ancestors. He has quite a few of his own deeds to account for. He laughs and Medgar asks if he's afraid of the dolls or ghosts. With a smile, Rhodey says that the only spooks he's afraid of are the ones with guns. I hate all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Rhodey is a piece of shit as well. Oh, no. Yeah. Punch him in the mouth. It's it's really upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say that um, I see why Rhodey is not the candidate because he comes off as a psychopath whenever he is on camera. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. The the no, it's like Dennis Reynolds. <laughs> it's horrifying. He's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 
Medgar laughs hard at this, too fucking hard at this, mm-hmm. and says that he's going to use that. But Rhodey cautions him that if he wants to get elected, no, he won't. He says that he's just been hanging around Medgar too long and says that they need to practice a real response to that. Medgar raises the camera again and Rhodey says that he's not concerned with scary stories. He's concerned with American values. They've been pacing the second floor hallway as they practice. And as Rhodey says this, he backs up against the stairs. I was hmm. like, this is a, he's about to death becomes her. Yeah. The- <laughs> <laughs> <It was. laughs> Hurry up, you whip. <laughs> but he loses his balance and goes tumbling down. And for just a moment, we see that doll sitting on the floor by the top staircase. Rhodey hits his head hard on the wall on his way down, leaving a smear of blood. We immediately cut to Rhodey's funeral. Yes. Yeah. Where the priest, played by John A. Cundiff, Rusty Cundiff's yeah. dad, mm-hmm. prays over the casket. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I did write a joke I think JP would like. I said that uh, Roger Ginver Smith spent about as much time playing Rhodes as Terrence Howard did. <laughs> 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 I do appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> that Thank one you. goes out to you. <laughs> but I was so shocked. Yeah. Well, hey, look at you now. You, you, sh- you should have known better, dude. Mm-hmm. Come on. Um, they also said um, Cundiff's father, he was only supposed to say one line. He was only supposed to say ashes to ashes. Yeah. But he wrote an entire... <laughs> <laughs> and that's what he's saying here. Oh, yeah, I love that. Right. <laughs> But in attendance is Medgar, who looks sorrowful. The second the funeral is over, he is accosted by reporters who ask if Rhodey's death happened under unusual circumstances. Medgar denies all of this, saying that it was just an unfortunate accident. He is asked if it would help his position with the black community if he would leave Wilkes Manor and just live somewhere else. But Medgar maintains that it's unfair to judge him or anyone else by the misdeeds of their ancestors. Besides, he's got many of his own misdeeds to account for. I I thought of Rhodes as like Force Ghost just smiling, yeah. <laughs> nodding at the camera. You're doing great. Force Ghost. <laughs> good, good. Exactly, yeah, just rubbing his hands together. He's asked if he's afraid of the ghosts and Medgar starts, well, the only spooks I'm afraid of. And then he pauses before remembering where the fuck he is and finishes, are you spooky reporters? I gasped right shut your mouth i was like are you- <laughs> i just can't i would i'm this whole um this whole segment i'm just in i'm clutching my pearls yeah. i'm in disbelief do you want to know what's bonkers to me now is thinking of um how mask off politicians have become now yeah he probably would have just said it yeah yeah and then people would be like he says what we're all thinking yeah, yeah. until he gets hit with the camera motherfucker and yeah, then his, his complexion and our his, camera yeah <laughs> his complexion and his hair did remind me of someone and we yes. were like this is a bit Stupid ahead shirt. of his time <laughs> i i honestly the the entire time especially during the daylight scenes i was like what the fuck is going on yeah with his hair yeah and you didn't know yet. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, again, when we talk about how the film is it's so... Too yeah. It's <laughs> unbelievable. They had no idea. But he rushes away from them. Before he can get into his limo, though, Eli stops him. He tells him that he should be scared because the souls don't want him there. He says that Medgar needs to leave or he'll end up like Rhodey or worse. Medgar says he has no intentions of leaving, so he hopes that he and the house can just get along. He then addresses the crowd. Can't we all just get along? 
he is I hate him yeah. I fucking hate him so much I will say that this is the only time that he could have appropriately said go away old man <laughs> yeah because he yeah. actually heard him yeah. <laughs> and he's right in front of him <laughs> That's it. Yeah. But I love that Eli is, you need to leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah seriously. You do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you really do. Meme aside, you need to leave. Yeah. He gets into the limo and Eli continues to yell that the souls don't want him there and they want reparations. In the limo, as they pull away from Eli and the rest of the reporters and spectators, Medgar notices the doll sitting on the floor. He picks it up and angrily tells the driver to stop. He asks who was let into the limo, but the limo driver, played by Bobby McGee, angrily tells him that he let no one inside. Medgar tosses the doll out the window and the limo drives off. You were just warned, dude. Yeah. Yep. Shouldn't have done that. Dude, nobody could have put that in there. Don't you realize yeah. what's yeah. going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were just told. Yes. Explicitly, you yeah. were told. Have you never seen an anthology horror film? <laughs> <laughs> Back at Wilkes Manor, Medgar watches the recording he took of Rhodey before he died. As Rhodey tumbles down the stairs, Medgar lowers the camera, and you can clearly see the doll sitting on the landing by the stairs. Now... You can clearly see the doll, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then there is a hilarious, oh my god, blurry, <laughs> grainy ass <laughs> <laughs> zoom. <laughs> no, that was Duke's vision. I think yeah. so. Yeah, he's like, oh, I yeah. love uh, Metzger enhance, <laughs> enhance the picture. I laughed so fucking hard at that zoom. Oh my because god, because it was so unnecessary. Yeah, the doll is right yeah, there. Yeah, we see, and him. we saw it when it happened in real yeah. life. Yeah, <laughs> it is clear as day. <laughs> Medgar pauses the footage and, yeah, zooms in on the doll, (laughs) disbelieving. Thunder rumbles outside as Medgar asks out loud, what the fuck? It's just an electrical storm. (laughs) It's It's fine. fine. (laughs) I placed the doll there. I just didn't remember. He looks at the mural of Miss Cobbs and notices that the doll that she had in her lap is missing. In its place is a whited out silhouette and the lightning and thunder continue. That is terrifying yeah it is such a brilliant concept to show what's happening yeah um if i'm him that's it yeah Yeah. maybe leave now go on yeah you don't need to be if you didn't want to listen before i mean you're seeing this yeah fuck off yeah go away Outside, something pants as it rapidly approaches Wilkes Manor. The music is wild as through a POV shot it crosses the lawn and climbs the stairs. Cundiff said that they wanted to do the entire the entire run up to the house. <laughs> and the editor was like, we'll, we'll do the steady cam, but we need to dissolve a few times. Yeah. <laughs> he said, nobody wants to see this <laughs> entire run across yeah. the lawn. That's a bit much. And it is a lot. Inside, Medgar makes a phone call, leaving a message for Bruce or Janet to call him back because there is something wrong here. When there's a knock on the door, he hangs up the phone, assuming that it's them, even though he just fucking called them. Yeah. <laughs> but when he unbolts the door and opens it, there is no one there. Tiny footsteps echo as something runs into the house. But when Medgar looks down, there is nothing. He locks the door back and turns around to find the doll sitting on the stairs, grinning at him. He asks, where the fuck did your little black ass come from? The doll gives no reply. <laughs> I don't I, know why I felt the need to put that. <laughs> the doll does not answer. Because he's a doll. Yes. Um, 
I did want to call out the sound design of the footsteps. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just staggered by his line that he said yeah. to the doll. It's it like, only gets worse. You, no, it's yeah. Unbelievable. They talked about because Corbin Burnson also was in the um featurette. Okay. And he and Cundiff and Scott all said that after every take, he was like, I'm just acting. Okay. <laughs> I'm just acting. He's like, I'm, I've got to take this to a really dark place. I don't mean any of this. I'm only acting. Like, he kept saying that constantly. I Well, you got to feel horrible yeah. saying this shit. But uh, Cundiff said that he was making everybody laugh. That everyone was laughing watching him in this whole sequence, the rest of this segment. Yeah. Well, character aside, his performance is great. Yeah. yeah. But Megger asks if it really thinks that Miss Cobbs can scare him out of his own house. He says he doesn't care how many slaves died here because he didn't kill them. He denies the doll reparations and throws a vase at it. The vase explodes against the stairs, but the doll is nowhere to be seen in the shattered glass that remains. Megger inspects it, but is distracted when he hears the footsteps racing behind him. He follows the sound, trying to capture the doll, but everywhere he looks, behind the doors, behind and underneath his desk, the doll is not there. Finally, he looks back up at the mural and curses Miss Cobbs. She stares back at him, unfazed. He picks up the American flag behind his desk and hits the painting of Miss Cobbs with it, and the wall responds by bleeding. Again, what more do you need? Literally. Yeah. They said it was supposed to be a baseball bat, but whenever they were on set and they had the American flag, they said the visual is too... I mean... It's too, you know, poignant. And this is your fault. You don't need to be blaming anybody, it. calling anybody names. Right. All of it. This you did this shit, dude. And I will say that what what follows is uh, tense and suspenseful, and uh, with all the effects work, a little fun. Yeah. yeah. But they had said that they cut out an entire sequence of him preparing for a debate because they realize that the audience just wants to see what happens next. Yeah. Like, we don't need to spend any more time. No. <laughs> We're not yeah, concerned yeah, with the no. campaign. Your yeah. political <laughs> ambitions or whatever. That's out the window. Let's... Uh... I did... Um, You said speaking of effects. Yeah. On this story, uh, the Kyoto brothers did the the effects on this okay, killer clowns yeah. that's nuts Hell, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were in that feature and they seemed just so thrilled about the stuff that they got to do and yeah. they talked about um the main doll and how they had all these different versions of him as he starts to look more different as it goes on like uh-huh. it would they seemed like they had a blast very nice Megger is, of course, confused by the bleeding wall, but before he can properly react he turns around to see the doll swinging from a light fixture it flings itself over to Metger and takes a bite out of crime. And by crime, I mean Metger's neck. <laughs> He's finally able to wrench it off and throw it to the floor. And it lays there lifelessly as Metger hits it with the flagpole. The music is chaotic as the doll is beaten. And Metger drops the hard R as he picks up the doll and vows to end it. Again, couldn't believe that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did want to call out, like you were saying with the effects, you see that there is there's elements of stop motion, yeah, yeah. puppetry, uh, and then also just simply a doll getting his ass beat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you know, you got it all. Yeah, you got it all. Outside, he ties the doll to a dartboard and shoots it with his shotgun. Satisfied, he goes back in, taunting Miss Cobbs that not even she can overcome the power of his shotgun. But Medgar stops in his tracks when he comes up to the mural. Four more of the dolls surrounding Miss Cobbs have disappeared, leaving a void in their absence. Tiny footsteps clatter around, but when Medgar looks around, he doesn't see anything. They're just going to die now, dude. Yeah, it's it. done. Yeah. Just lay on the floor. Yeah. Just make it easy for them. <laughs> 
Still hurling racial slurs, Medgar promises that if he killed one of them, he can kill all of them. Armed with his shotgun, he looks around Wilkes Manor. When he finally sees a doll standing brazenly in the doorway, he loads his shotgun. But when he gets a closer look at the doll, we see that it's the original one that Medgar has already shot. The doll puts itself back together and straightens its clothes, causing Medgar to shake so badly that he drops the shells. The doll comes running at him, but he's able to scoop up his things. He struggles to unlock the door to the next room with his key, but he manages to get it open and slams it in the doll's face just in time. He locks the door, but when he goes back up to the mural, his face contorts in fear. Every single one of the dolls is missing from the painting. Miss Cobb sits alone, staring at him coolly. Medgar turns around to see all the dolls gathered together facing him. The first doll points him out with an army behind him. Medgar sinks down to the ground and stammers for his words as he wraps himself in the American flag. The dolls decide to advance as they attack and bite him and all he can do is scream. The visual of him draping himself. Yeah. yeah that is, again, very poignant. Mm-hmm. Kind of had said that what they had wanted was the next day people come to the house and they find him hanging from the top of the house with the American flag. Mm -hmm. And they're like, how do you get up there? And then they showed this and everybody was like, no, everyone is going to want to see those dolls. Fuck them up. Yeah, that's what they're going to want to see. So they were like, money, please. Uh, We need money to do that. They got the money. They came back to reshoot and and do that. So the ending was completely changed. But they're like, you can't present the showdown and the cut and then he's just outside it's like well now that i agree with the test audience yeah (laughs) no shit we want to see those dolls fuck him up yeah he had that coming yeah absolutely and it is funny because they're all like (laughs) 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 it's so good it's so good and we needed it we needed it it was cathartic (laughs) (laughs) bite him for us yeah But a white light envelops Miss Cobbs and she disappears from the painting. She reappears in the room, a flesh and blood person sitting in her rocking chair. Miss Cobbs, played by Christina Cundiff, rocks in her chair slowly, watching the carnage as she cradles the original doll. Now, this is Rusty Cundiff's mom. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And he had said that she was very introverted and kind of nervous, but he was like, just pretend like you're looking at me like you're disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is a great direction. Yeah. (laughs) But back at the funeral home, Mr. Sims comments that the story gives you a new reverence for dolls as he lies it down on the pulpit. Stat comes to look at it, but when he lifts an arm and it flops back down lifelessly, he's had enough. He says that this is bullshit and asks Mr. Sims if he's going to give them what they came for or not. Bulldog chimes in that he doesn't have all night to listen to these ghost stories, but Mr. Sims disagrees. <laughs> yeah, he's been telling him yeah. to. You've listened to three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it sounds like you have time. It's like, we need one more story or it's not yeah. a feature, dude. <laughs> He says that they're not ghost stories and he insists that everything that he says is real. Bulldog says for him to show him how real the shit he got is. And with the giggle, Mr. Sims remembers, ah, the shit (laughs) behind them. Ball is peeking into the next room. He tells his friends that they're not going to believe this. They approach the open casket in the next room. And Mr. Sims asks if they knew the man inside. Stack says no. At the same time that ball says yes. Now, before they enter the room, did you mention that Mr. Sims puts a lit cigar into his pocket? Oh, no, I don't think I saw that. He puts it in his pocket and it's smoking. (laughs) And 
<laughs> at later. that point, you'll guess, <laughs> I guess so. Why are we not like, leaving? This is yeah. a hint. <laughs> yes. This is subtle foreshadowing. Like, well, it's weird that fire doesn't affect him. Yeah. Uh, he is, he's not burned. Uh. That's fucking hilarious. But I guess we'll let it. It's fine. Yeah. Bulldog stares Ball down and reminds him that they don't know the man in the casket. They've just seen him around. Mr. Sims looks into the casket and says that the man inside got himself involved in crazy gang madness. The shit. He repeats that he got himself involved in the shit. We segue into the next story, Hardcore Convert. Jerome Crazy K. Johns, played by Lamont Bentley, drives down the street as Born to Die by Spice One plays. He stops at a red light, but when he sees Deke, played by Ricky Harris, drive past him, he busts a U-turn to follow him. He laughs to himself, talking shit to Deke as he trails him. I will say the music, like I remember, and I when I watching this for the show, I remember that I used to listen to the fuck out of this song when I was a teenager. Like, yeah. I bumped the shit out of this. But I watched the 10 minute, uh, I guess it was a, like a documentary. They were talking about the rappers who worked on the soundtrack for this. Okay. Oh. It's uh, like uh, ODB, Old Dirty Bastard, and uh, Spice One, mm-hmm. E40, NG, like you said. There was a lot of people. They said that when they spoke with everybody that was working on it, and they had told them this was something that never had a crossover rap and horror music uh-huh. so that they had told them look these are the stories this is what i want you to make the song about and they were like this is like you said earlier this is real shit yeah this is shit that happens that it is scary it is something that's happening all the time and not enough people are talking about it and they did in the music like i said the music you listening to the soundtrack for this like you can feel all that shit I do remember we had a question a long time ago on Talk Mortem about the lack of intersection between uh, hip-hop and horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That there is, but it's not as much as other genres. Right. Uh, But they had said as well, kind of it said that intentionally a lot of these songs, especially this one, was meant as commentary with rap music aggrandizing this lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, what we put out... Mm -hmm has effects as well yes for sure but deke parks in front of a house and gets out of the car crazy k gets out of his own car and confronts deke about alleged shit that he's talked the confrontation is swift and deke barely has time to say a word before crazy k unloads his gun in deke's chest deke slides down his car and collapses in the street dead three men come out of the house and immediately shoot crazy k he falls out in the street coughing up blood The three men stand over him, but before they can put him out of his misery, one of them stops them. I did say that there were three men, right? Yes, you did. Just making sure. Very important. He asks how many Crazy K has killed over the years. As Crazy K coughs up blood, the three stand over him, continuing to talk shit, their faces shrouded in darkness. Suddenly, there are multiple police cars behind them. The men take off running, shooting at the cops behind them, but they're ultimately killed by the officers. The three fall dead, but Crazy K lives, lamenting that he was saved by the cops as he continues to choke on his blood. So one thing that they did that kind of said that he thought would be an interesting idea is you often hear Latin chants and horror films when it comes to supernatural. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Religious horror. Mm Mm-hmm. But to put it in this context of real life horror, yeah, it is a little jarring in a way that's very unsettling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Um, he also talked about the slow motion that they did mm-hmm. where you're supposed to shoot it at a certain number of frames and they decided to shoot it at a lower number of frames and it really pissed off the cinematographer. Yeah. But it gives you like this jerky, jarring yeah. feeling as well. Yeah. And he had said apparently he shot a music video for Neil Young. Rusty Cundiff did. Uh-huh. And he did the same thing there. And so he just used what he did there for here. I mean, right, if it works, yeah. it works. Yeah. And again, I love when people take experiences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what life is. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. what you're supposed to do. Absolutely. But at the jail, as she walks up to his cell, Dr. Cushing, played by Rosalind Cash, asks the prison guard, played by Mark Christopher Lawrence, about Crazy K. So Mark Christopher Lawrence was in cundiff's previous film Mm -hmm. the one with jike spingleton yeah (laughs) (laughs) so this he called (laughs) this he called a cameo okay uh, on commentary but um i recognize mark christopher lawrence he was on seinfeld twice yeah (laughs) so i thought that was kind (laughs) of that's what i caught him from and i want to say rosalind cash what a presence yeah Yeah, she's incredible yeah Um, she did one tv movie after this but this was her last feature she unfortunately passed away Yeah. yeah i believe in 1995 damn but what a presence yeah and performance yes. yeah oh and dude is uh orderly and terminator 2 oh the yes he is yeah we just watched that yeah i was scrolling through his imdb and it's a lot of like security guards yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's steady work he's like yeah i can play that <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking <laughs> god damn it dude But the guard tells her that he was given a life sentence without possibility of parole. He's been in solitary confinement for the last two years for assaulting other inmates. His past arrests include charges of aggravated assault, first degree battery, aggravated mayhem, and suspicion of murder three times. When they arrive at his cell, Crazy K is doing very angry sit-ups on the floor. I'm angry when I got to do sit-ups too. Like, I get it. Yeah, but that's got to hurt your back. Slamming <laughs> on, the, into, yeah. on the ground? Yeah. Slamming it into the floor. I get you want to get a little momentum, but... Ouch. Yeah. Or just don't do them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get ripped like that monster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cushing has to call his name multiple times to get him to stop. But once he does, she asks how he would like being released from prison. He accuses her of fucking with his mind, asking how that would even happen. Well, interesting um, word choice. Indeed. Dr. Cushing says that if he would consent to behavioral modification, he'll be back on the street in no time. This finally gets his attention. He agrees before going back to his angry sit-ups. Before Dr. Cushing leaves, she tells the guard that Jerome will do and to prepare the transfer. So behavioral modifications Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. made me think a lot of Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Yeah. And... um. I wonder if that was any kind of influence. It was. He said yeah. it was. Well, there yeah. we go. <laughs> You're like, I arrived at that yeah. independently. <laughs> hey, is uh, Clockwork Orange like a horror kind of anyway? So we can cover it for my birthday <laughs> next year? Hell yes. <laughs> okay. Well, not to give it away. We probably won't cover it. <laughs> uh, what I What is a Clockwork Orange? Yeah. <laughs> it's not even a movie. What are we no, it is Oranges a are good. Citrus. Oranges yeah. are delicious. Um, and versatile. we love clocks. Yeah. Yes. You, know? you can use the rind. <laughs> <laughs> We immediately cut to Jerome being transported, chained up inside of a police van, wearing nothing but his boxers. They finally arrive at a facility. Jerome is escorted in and is shocked when he sees what appears to be naked bodies hung upside down and wrapped, wheeled past him. 
So, firstly, the facility that looks like a castle on the hill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very classic horror situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, it's a matte painting. Yeah. But it looks good. It works. It does. Um, the bodies were very surprising. Yeah. And they had said that they're actually real actors in there. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because I think they had said something about wanting to get actual cadavers. Yes. I thought they talked about that on the featurette, too. Yeah. That they had wanted to get cadavers, and then at the last minute were like, maybe that's not a yeah. good idea. I think that's a bit much. And maybe. Then, yeah. Uh, one of the guys was saying that they had wanted to get like mannequins, uh-huh. and they he was like, they have to be a cer- they have to be made a certain way to look realistic, hanging upside down, yeah. because he wanted them upside down. Mm-hmm. So they were like, let's use real people. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that so much of this facility feels nightmarish. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and almost nonsensical. But whatever. Okay, it's not important. <laughs> okay, but the, to back to the bodies, he said that they had to have two people on each person that was in there ready to, because they're literally wrapped in plastic. Yeah. yeah, ready to like put them back the right side up to give them air. I was like, God, and it is so short. Yeah, you know yes. how much work went into just just that? It's literally like uh, two seconds. It, it's yeah, so it short. It is. But just as he starts to look shocked at what he's seeing, he is taken to a cell. The cell is a cage. He's put inside and he seethes as he sits down. In the next cell, Tattoo Man, played by Rick Dean, says that Jerome might be the first soldier in his army. I am noticing that I've shifted from Crazy K to Jerome, but I uh, th- th- it's the same man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're both his name. Well, that's his government. It's yeah. his government name. They did say that the cages were stacked intentionally. They wanted them to look like um, like a pet shop. Yeah, I was going to say, cell is yeah. generous because yeah, that's it's a, a cage. fucking cage. Yeah. yeah. Tattoo Man sighs and scoots closer to the bars that separate them before asking Jerome what he did, peppering in a racial slur. He says that he must have done something really bad to be here and he wants to know what it was. Angrily, Jerome tells him that he's in for murder and that he wouldn't mind doing it again. The tattooed man laughs and agrees. He's killed a lot of people himself. He asks if Jerome wants to know what kind of people and implores that he comes closer. When Jerome doesn't move, the man asks if he's afraid of them, and that gets Jerome to scoot closer. He shows him his tattoos, and he is covered in white pride ink, even a portrait of Hitler on his chest. He advises Jerome that the final fight between black and white has begun, and that all of the black people will be killed. The only ones who won't will be the few who rise up with them. They will be spared and live the rest of their life as slaves. He asks Jerome if he wants to be spared and offers him to come and join his army. Rightfully, Jerome reaches through the bars and punches him in the mouth. As you should. Absolutely. That was accurate. As he bleeds, the tattooed man chuckles again. He asks what was the color of the men that Jerome killed? And that finally gives him pause. Jerome doesn't answer him, but he doesn't have to. Based on this, the tattooed man tells Jerome that he's cool with him and that he likes him a lot. This um, made me sick to my stomach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darren Scott said that to him, the way that they were viewing what Jerome is doing or what he has been doing is carrying the racist water for them mm. is what he said um and rusty kind of even said that gang members had reached out to him and said that this segment in this film caused them to turn their lives around because wow. it was a wake-up call to them 
That's what I'm saying about how important this movie is. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a lot of it is a lot of fun, you know, and Clarence Williams, the third is a fucking blast. But this segment, it is like it, it, it hurts my stomach. Like it's literally hard to watch. This segment I, I mentioned at the top, I said that I might uh, skip segments on rewatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like this one you have to be in the right headspace for. Absolutely. Right. Because especially for what we're what's about to happen. Because it, it's yeah, devastating. Yeah. It is very difficult to watch. But later, standing in an elevator next to Dr. Cushing and two guards, Jerome tells her that he doesn't appreciate being put next to that man. But Dr. Cushing tells him that he is someone that he needed to meet. He's here to be rehabilitated and they're using a process that the government paid her to develop. I do want to say the bit of movie magic with this elevator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The lights that appear are the shifting floors. Yeah. It's just a guy swinging a light. That's (laughs) fucking brilliant. I would have never guessed. No. It's so cool. (laughs) But she says that if Jerome can successfully complete the process, he will most likely be released. But if he doesn't, he'll spend the rest of his life in solitary confinement, which she makes a point to say wouldn't bother her a bit. She tells Jerome that she thinks he's scum and not to test her. So this doctor's biased against me. (laughs) (laughs) Why'd you pick me? (laughs) This isn't cool. Yeah. As she leads him into another room, Dr. Cushing tells Jerome that the testing they did says that he has a high IQ. She asks if he's ever been interested in science, and he says that he sold some chemicals in his day. Down the stairs in the center of the room is a very medieval-looking table. Smoke hisses around it. Dr. Cushing takes notes before heading down to it. Jerome tells her that there's no way he's getting on there, but she reminds him that he has to. Jerome is led down to the table and forced onto it. They crank it down so that he's laying flat and they take a razor to his head to shave it. He had a K at the beginning mm-hmm. shaved into his head. Yeah. It's gone. Mm. He grunts and struggles as they attach the headgear to him and strap down his hands and legs. They crank the table up and Jerome whimpers as they force a tube into his nose. Gloves are put on his hands and monitors and nodes are placed on his fingers and chest. Can I have a blanket at least? It is. Yeah, he's, I mean, they just have him out here. Yeah. Cold steel. Yeah. They had said, Cundiff said that he had wanted this entire sequence to be him naked, but he knew that the MPAA would obviously have an uh, issue. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't get the name of who it was because they didn't mention it on commentary and I couldn't find it, but they said that the guy that designed the chair also designed a lot of elements for Nine Inch Nails videos. <laughs> I can absolutely that okay, looks like something yeah. from a Nine Inch Nails video. Yes. I can absolutely see that because help me. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Cushing turns a wheel, affixing something to Jerome's genitals, and when he threatens to break her neck when he gets out of this, she puts a metal ball in his mouth to silence him. There's a tube running into the ball, and green liquid flows up and into Jerome's mouth. She tells him that she doesn't think he will break her neck, and walks away. Assistants crank the table back down and a device that looks like something out of an optometrist's office is placed over his eyes. The table is raised and at the pull of a lever by Dr. Cushing, it begins to spin slowly. She instructs the assistant to start the optical sequences before calling out to Jerome and she tells him that she wants him to see something. 
Born to Die by Spice One plays again as Jerome is bombarded with images. There are crosses burning in yards, KKK members assembling on horses, gang members pulling hoods over their own faces, as well as hoods worn by those in the KKK. Lynchings and guns firing, people being murdered in the streets. The tattooed man licks a bloodied tongue out at him as he has shown more bodies of black men and women, more lynchings, more shootings, more clan meetings. The table spins faster, around and around as he reacts to these images with wide eyes and the 3D rendering of his body on the monitor in front of Dr. Cushing spins. Jerome screams, his cries muffled by the device in his mouth. Dr. Cushing asks him, what's wrong? He doesn't like seeing black people killed, but isn't that what he's been doing all his life? She reminds him that Cain was the first murderer and he's slain his brother. She screams at him, asking how many he has slain. The horrific images continue, interspliced with Jerome's horrified reactions. So seeing everything in context juxtaposed together, mm-hmm. this is one of the most horrific things I've ever seen on film. Literally. Yeah. And these are real images. That's the yeah. thing. Um, this is all real. They did say on commentary, Rusty Cundiff said that the real images that we see in the film were found by a researcher named Trina Davis. Mm-hmm. And I looked up Trina Davis and Trina Davis's name now is Trina Davis Cundiff. Oh, I got goosebumps. <laughs> I'm so fucking easy. <laughs> well, they, they're they're married. Um, yeah, no, I got it. <laughs> but I think that the thing about this that makes it so difficult is that they're real, and that whenever you, it's just the concept of what they're trying to convey. Mm-hmm. Everything together. This is one of the most difficult things I've ever seen on film. Literally. Yeah. Period. And I mean, y'all heard the the list of names up at the top. This is highly requested. This has been yeah. requested for a very long time. I typically do the anthologies and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that final story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like this... that's why it has taken us so long because it's so it's so difficult. Mhm. But abruptly, we are cut to Jerome being lowered into a sensory deprivation chamber. From above, Dr. Cushing explains that he will not be able to see or hear anything. All his mind will have to feast on is itself, which, she adds with a chuckle, is a tiny meal indeed. She laughs as Jerome is finally lowered to the bottom and the lights turn off. When Jerome is alone at the bottom of the chamber, they turn back on. They strobe on and off until a man walks up to him. He asks if Jerome remembers him, and Jerome does. He's Tracy, played by Scotty Bruley. He has blood smeared across his face and chest. He asks Jerome why they haven't talked in so long before suddenly remembering, that's right, Jerome killed him. He opens his shirt to reveal the bullet wound in his chest. He says that he has a question for him. Why? Jerome stares at him, horrified. He stutters that Tracy kept coming up short all the time and he couldn't just let him rip him off. Tracy is suddenly replaced with a group of younger boys. They are marked with blood as well. One even has his brain exposed. They remind Jerome that he didn't even know them. He just drove past an open fire. They tell him that it was wrong. Despite them saying that it wasn't them, he still responds aggressively and says that it was their group that killed his friend and they would have done the same to him if given the chance. They step to the side and little girl played by Tasha Johnson approaches him with a bullet wound in her chest. She tells him that she didn't do anything. She was just playing in her room and a bullet came through the wall. Jerome stutters that bullets don't have names on them and she was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's when I was like, oh, you're a fucking monster. If that is not getting in. Yeah. As the lights continue to flicker, a large group gathers, all people that Jerome has murdered. Their words echo together and he yells at them to shut up. 
Dr. Cushing suddenly stands in the middle of them and asks why they need to shut up. Are they saying something that he doesn't want to hear? Jerome asks if they're blaming everything on him. Are they trying to make him crazy? He tells Dr. Cushing that he's not responsible for them, but she says that he is responsible for the lives he's taken and for the dreams that he's turned into nightmares. Sobbing now, Jerome asks, what about his nightmare? The nightmare he's lived in since he was born. He asks Dr. Cushing who's responsible for that, and she tells him to tell her. She offers his parents, his teachers, the world. Jerome says yes, all of them. So now he's the nightmare. Dr. Cushing says that the nightmare ends when he says it does. She tells him to take the responsibility to wake up and break the chain. He tells her that he only has one responsibility in this world, and that's him. Nothing else matters. Dr. Cushing says that she's giving him a chance at redemption, but Jerome doubles down, telling his victims that he doesn't care anything about any of them. He tells him to stop messing with his mind and let him out. Dr. Cushing says that there's nothing to stop him from getting up, and suddenly the straps on his arms and legs release him. He stands up and immediately grabs a woman, threatening to snap her neck if she doesn't let him out. Dr. Cushing pleads with him, saying that it's not too late to be saved and that he's not going to get another chance. But Jerome says that he doesn't want another chance because he doesn't give a fuck. His other victims disappear as he repeats again and again that he doesn't give a fuck. After a while, Dr. Cushing disappears. After that, the woman he was holding hostage does too. At this point, I realize that Cushing is wearing all white. Yeah. And you're like, okay. Yeah. yeah. This is... It's... it's Yeah. Yes. Back on the street, shot and bleeding, Jerome wakes up repeating, I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. Above him, the three men empty their guns and kill Jerome. Back at Sims' funeral home, Jerome lies in the casket. Mr. Sims says that he doesn't think you can rehabilitate those types. You just kill them. Abruptly, Bulldog pulls out his gun and points it at Mr. Sims' face. Stack urges him to just shoot him, but Mr. Sims is confused. Bulldog says that they're sick of him giving them the runaround, and that last story wasn't funny. Ball smacks Mr. Sims in the head, asking if he's going to call the cops. His eyes wide once again. Mr. Sims asks why he would do that. Bulldog drops the bomb because Mr. Sims knows who killed Jerome and he hasn't said anything. Now, I don't know how they yeah, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. know that. Yeah. Well, he, knows. he knows everything else. That's yeah, a fair point. Yeah. You know, he's like, we've been here for about 90 minutes and yeah. it's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's getting crazier and crazier. <laughs> we don't have time for a fifth story. <laughs> We see from Jerome's point of view in the street, the three men standing over him, pointing their guns in his face. They empty their guns into Jerome, and when the smoke clears, we see that they are Bulldog, Stack, and Ball. <gasps> yeah. What? And so you realize, <laughs> that's why their voices were so yeah, yeah. distorted. Like, What's going yeah. on? What are you like, saying? Maybe in his dying stupor. Uh, <laughs> right. Why are they talking that way? We yeah, know who they are already. Literally, yeah. though. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I didn't. <laughs> when they were the three guys, I was like, mm. I was like, you know, three people. I was yeah. like, that, was the, that height combination looks real familiar. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. Back in the funeral home, they urge Bulldog to shoot Mr. Sims, but he says that they need to get the shit first. Mr. Sims giggles the shit he tells them to follow him 
They do. Bulldog's gun still trained on him. Mr. Sims continues giggling and muttering to himself as they go, but he leads them down to the basement. We need to talk about what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's the, I love this dude. <laughs> it's it's improv by Clarence Williams III because he's like, the shit, <laughs> the doo-doo. <Yeah. laughs> like, what? It's what is great. going on? <laughs> so again, no, it stops here. <laughs> it's very campy. <laughs> simply placing his finger next to the light bulb turns it on in the basement and illuminates it i was like um can we leave now (laughs) they lament that there's spiders down here but when they see that mr sims has led them to a pile of books they lose their patience bulldog hits mr sims in the face with his gun and he goes down he regains something of composure and leads them in the opposite direction further into the basement when they don't follow him he calls out that he has it hid in the next room, he stands in front of three coffins. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> this doesn't seem weird at all. Oh, no. <laughs> the good news, though, is that we will all stand in front of the room. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> in front of the room. <laughs> There's something for everyone. In front of <laughs> the-, <laughs> the correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he tells them that he hid the shit in these <laughs> he turns toward them and yells where else would he hide it finally as the music mounts they join him in the room each with their gun trained on him they take, they take their positions <laughs> next to a coffin <laughs> Mr. Sims is like, and you stand here. Right. No, no, no. no you, yes. yeah. not work. Switch with Bulldog. <laughs> yes, yes. The shit. Oh right. The doo doo. The Stack opens the one next to him to find himself. Ball does the same, then Bulldog. Each man stands next to a coffin. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Each man stands next to a coffin containing his own corpse. <laughs> what? Wow. what? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> they decide to just shoot Mr. Sims. But from his position in the doorway, we see that his eyes have turned bright red. Right. That's bad. Yeah. <laughs> All of the guns turn red hot, burning the men until they drop them. They scream, but Mr. Sims has something to say. He says that after they killed Jerome, a few of his boys killed them. Covered in sweat and eyes wide, he smiles as he says that he guesses they didn't make it. They don't believe him. Ball asks if they're dead, and Mr. Sims screams, Very! Bulldog calls bullshit, saying that if they're dead, what are they doing here in a funeral home with him? <laughs> I mean, that's the dead people are here. <laughs> Bulldog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the answer is simple, and Mr. Sims screams it at them dramatically. This ain't no funeral home. Thunder rumbles as Mr. Sims continues that it ain't the terror dome neither. He welcomes them to hell motherfuckers <laughs> now the and slither. i do yeah, I, I do the long s because a forked tongue comes yeah. from this man's mouth you just it looks fantastic i, I it. was like this can't get any better like, yeah. this is fucking amazing you were doing so well <laughs> so you didn't like it i didn't understand 
the tongue that was placed on the film. <laughs> <laughs> it killed me. I was like, yes, I'm in. I wherever you want to take me, I'm I'm here. Yeah. I, I was like, why is he so sweaty? <laughs> <laughs> so sweaty. Like, yeah. and then well, it's hot. You yeah. Get, yeah. It's, 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 it's quite hot. It's quite hot. The cigar didn't affect but him. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get to this point and you're like, oh, for sure. Mr. Sims was a was trying to act like a human. <laughs> yes. That man was never a human. No, being. he was absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but realization and horror dawns on the men's faces. Mr. Sims suit is stripped away and he takes his demonic form. He laughs his ass off as the glamour of the funeral home is lost and the men writhe in the flames of hell. I, they did say that his, um, prosthetic and that's what they used for the monster was, was, oh, his, was okay. his, horns, his prosthetic cool um that the makeup and that took um like four hours to put on him and his body luckily was something that he could just step into yeah but they asked him how he liked the process of doing the makeup and stuff and he was like i didn't oh, well. <laughs> he wasn't a fan i don't blame him yeah sometimes you gotta sit there for a long time yeah, yeah. i will say um that's about a zodiac and two madmen so it's about how long it takes <laughs> to twist my hair, just for the record. Um, I did want to say them dancing in the flames was hilarious. It was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, I used to the word writhing. Yes. Well, you, you know. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Yeah. Exactly. We use different, uh, you know. Uh, that, again, I was like, it felt, and I hate saying this, but it's like, when did you guys run out of <laughs> money? <laughs> At this point, <laughs> they're, they're just the right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it fades to black in the credits roll, playing Face Mob by Face Mob featuring Scarface. Um, so I have to ask because I know we were about to get into it. What did you guys think of Tales from the Hood? I love this movie. Yeah. Uh, cartoon tongue and all. Oh, That's my, uh, that I got to tell you. I don't know why that meant so much to me, but it did. It did. <laughs> that was it was quite <laughs> exciting. On commentary, and this is not a joke, but it is a joke. Kind of said that is Clarence Williams the Third's real. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Real tongue. <laughs> He was so sweaty. Yeah, he was. He was. <laughs> they well, said he's, he's wearing a it. velvet suit. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd be pretty toasty. Oh, yeah. And I'm the devil or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what kind of it said. He was like, because people were like, well, what is he doing? Like, if yeah, he's just yeah. the devil. And he was like, he's just having fun. Like, he's just having fun with them. Yeah. He's amusing himself. Hmm. <laughs> no, but I really enjoyed this movie. I still enjoy it uh, as an adult. Uh, it does suck that it still, you know what I mean, holds to this day of yeah. what's going on. Um, I will say that that as an ex-gang member, I do. It is hard to watch, but it does make you kind of see things from a different point of view. Instead of us fighting each other, we should be uniting and fighting the things that really do matter. Yeah, and that's the goal. I mean, yeah. that was the point. That was the point. Oh, mm -hmm. no, yeah. Um, but it does. It has a lot of different messages, and there is commentary to talk about, and there is a lot of disturbing images and stuff that goes on here. But it's shit that did happen and stuff that does happen and uh, it still needs to be fucking addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but the movie's great. Everybody in it's great. Uh, this has got to be one of my top favorite movies. And I can I can see why. I think it's very good. It's very poignant. I, I It's not perfect, but I think that the messaging of it is very impactful. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's an important film. I will say that it is tonally jarring. 
It is. It it is. I'll give you that. Um, but it does. It it accomplishes what it set out to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In each uh, of the writers' intentions. Yeah. yeah. I feel like this is a special film in in what exactly you just said it's not perfect there are a lot of issues oh yeah (laughs) i'm laughing at you saying when did you run out of money (laughs) well then you know like a temp shot that they're like this is what we're planning (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna have them use it i don't know okay fucking put it in all right um it is not the film itself is not perfect but i think that the messaging and the the intention and the execution of those intentions make up for any shortcomings that the actual film itself has. I hate that it took me this long to watch it. I've seen it before before this. Yeah. But I it, it was what the few years ago, a couple years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was not very long ago that well, I saw this for the first one time. One thing I will say is I remember seeing the VHS at the video store yeah. when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And somehow it just never ended up. Yeah. yeah. Maybe because of that last one, our parents were probably like, I That's, don't know about this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't too think. Much, but, too much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not ready for it now. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. But again, sometimes we're supposed to be uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. And when they talk about banning books and shit like that because they're upsetting. Yeah. That's the fucking point. You know, no growth is comfortable. Mm-hmm. If it's, you are comfortable 100% of the time, you're not growing and you're not learning anything. Yeah. It's literally called growing pains. Literally. Yeah. So, I mean, for that reason, I feel like this for any horror, I would say for anyone, but I feel like especially any horror fan, this is a required watch. Yeah. Um, Period. And I don't say that. I know we say like, yeah, I, I would recommend it. Anybody would watch it. This, I feel like it needs to be seen mm-hmm. because it's like, it's so multifaceted and you know plus clarence williams the third yeah, <laughs> yeah this is not a, a um performance to be missed no no but having said all that and how you know, i i guess we're sliding into ratings <laughs> um <laughs> everything that that we just said it is it's hard for me to just look at this movie as a movie as what it is giving me at face value as far as you know, I'm going to press play and then now the credits are rolling. It's so much deeper than that. It has so much meaning behind it. And as we've said, you know, 50 times at this point, it's more relevant than ever. It's more important than ever. It's it's just sadly timeless in a way that it shouldn't be. But that aspect of it makes it uniting in a way that is really important. And I feel especially that last story, it's like, man, you know, wake up. Mm-hmm. any marginalized group any any marginalized group we should be uniting we should not mm-hmm. be fighting each other we're not the the bad guy here yeah. you know what i mean it's just so it's so important and i i know i keep saying important but i, I can't find a more important word than important it's, uh-huh. it's so imperative to it's crucial it's crucial yeah. god damn it <laughs> i mean and and when it's fun it's fun it's great it's campy some of the effects man that the the last <laughs> that last bit in the funeral home <laughs> i love that yeah like, it's so like we were talking about evil dead it adds to what this is yes, yes. you know i love how fucking cheesy that looks i love that that tongue was clearly added (laughs) like i I love every piece of that it's just great but then you know that last story with um with crazy k and Mm -hmm. with the the i mean it is just it's a fucking gut punch and i feel like they uh, they did what they set out to do especially kind because i know that he came to this with a message and 
I mean, it is, it, it, it's, you can't miss it. No. Um, for that. And again, I'm, I'm saying before I say this, this is not a perfect movie. It's not, it's not a perfect film. You're not going to be blown away. This is not, you know, blown away visually or anything like that, right. but it's one of the most important films that we have ever covered and probably ever will cover because it is, it, it's messaging that will never be wrong. It -hmm. will never not be something that we need to be reminded of. And we need to, we need to practice. Right. You know, um, I could fucking go on and on, but because of that, uh, because of the messaging in this and because of how (laughs) important (laughs) every time I say important, no, don't, don't don't do it. You will die. Um, (laughs) so because of that on a scale from one to 10 mangled monsters, I am going to give Tales from the Hood 10 out of 10 mangled monsters. Again, this is not a perfect film, but the message behind it is. Mm-hmm. And I got I I feel moved. I feel like I need to reflect that. So I will now open up the floor. No, I, I agree. This is a movie that should be seen and understood what it's trying to say. I, I watch, like I said, I watched this movie a lot as a kid. So nostalgia does play a part in it, but also has someone who has had a background. My mom was in a gang when she was younger. My oldest brother was in a gang. My other older brother was in a gang. I was like it. You do see that it happens. We get stuck in the cycle in our communities and it just happens over and over and over and it is up to us to come together to to put a stop to it and to make things better for the community and around us and people around us yeah but it's up to us to do it the movie is good itself Uh and again some yeah some of the stuff is rough in it (laughs) but it needs like you said it needs to be heard yeah you know it needs to be seen um but man, yeah, the people they got in this movie too. The stuff like I don't even mind that some of it's cheesy. Like you said, it's I love it. It's yeah, great. I know I was giggling because I was thinking of the tongue again. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, like that, we can go on a whole thing about mm-hmm. bad cops and whatever. And um, none of that shit is cool. Uh, it does need to be addressed. But for me, on a scale from one to ten, mangled monsters. That's it. I'm going to give Tells from the Hood a ten out of ten mangled monsters. monsters. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear. Yes. yes. Um, I very much enjoy this movie. I don't think I can really say anything more. I would just be piggybacking and repeating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as the message is concerned, um, positives, the performances are great. Yeah. Um, cinematography is fun a lot of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The effects are like really good. Uh-huh. Surprisingly so for a 1995 film. Yeah. yeah. And I think the stories with their morals are very impactful and important. Mm-hmm. I just think on the negative side, that <laughs> tonal shift. <laughs> and I got to admit, 
when I see the tongue and when I see them dancing in the flames, <laughs> I'm like, well, don't just do that. Yeah. <laughs> right, run, run. Yeah, run. like, I, and, and then it ends so abruptly. Dancing yeah. in the flames. Like, they're just like, <laughs> and then this is it, that's it. And then we're done, and then we're back. And it's like, oh, well, okay. We don't need a, but they might be alive. Well, no, 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 they're gone. No, no, they're, they're gone. They're next hell. to their, <laughs> their respective comments. Yeah. <laughs> Made sure to see their proper corpses. Uh, you know, but no, I think, I think that it's a very good film uh very very smart in its commentary incisive yes and very very important even in 2023 yeah so many years later yeah um which is as heartbreaking as it is uh crucial Mm -hmm. and so it is one to watch but i i I said it to me it's not a perfect film yeah Yeah. uh the messaging is yeah yeah but the film itself i can't i can't abide no yeah Uh, Um, but it is a, it's a very good film and you should watch it. <laughs> Are you gonna give us? Oh score? yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna keep talking about that those flames, dude. <laughs> um, but for me, out of ten, uh, mangled monsters. Yes, I believe is what we've decided. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I'm gonna give Tales from the Hood an eight point five out of ten. Mangled monsters. That's still good, man. It's a very good movie. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's great. I'm gonna watch it again. Obviously, I came to the table with a nine, but I was getting very moved as I was reliving that last one. So yeah. I was moved, and then I saw the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> so too much tongue too much tongue <laughs> 1.5 well that's all from us at Podmortem what would you rate Tales from the Hood and what should we watch next let us know on Twitter at the Podmortem be sure to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook be sure to follow each of us on Twitter at Blood and Smoke at RealStreeter84 and at TravisMWH Please consider pledging to our Patreon and stay tuned until after the music for a special shout out to our Wendigo Getter patrons. And remember, turning on each other in the face of evil is just giving them what they want. The only way to truly defeat it is for us to stick together. Until next time. Thank you for staying tuned for a special shout out to our Wendigo Getter patrons. Yeah! Yeah. Woo! Great job, guys! (laughs) We didn't have to make eye contact. Not at all! (laughs) We're fine. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, we know what we're doing. We're professionals. We got it. Yeah! (laughs) A special thank you to Chris Ontiveros, Kristen Lofton, Megan Martinez, Kimberly Bass, Sophie Hodson, Anthony Jerome M., Jordan Nash, Kent Morton, Lala Thomas, Travis and Nisa Hunter, Miguel Myers ATX, Jennifer Perez, Allison O'Neill, Carissa, TJ and Angie Bronson, Gabrielle Trevino, Spooky Mom, Andy Teague, Applin Ontiveros, Karima Rhodes, Antonio Huerta, Kimberly Kleindienst, Will Brown, Sydney Smith, Osvaldo Soto, Jonathan, Bobby Holmes, Donna Eason, J.D. Rizak, Molly Gerhardt, Armand Spasto, Aaron Aguirre, Eggie, William Barry, Brittany Ramatar, Charity Oxner, Amanda Six, Mandy Rainwater, Eden, Jordan Roberts, Dylan, Melissa Sierra, Holly Bryan, Jordan Blevins, Liz Heath, Spencer Montavo, Pancake the Panda, John Ramos, Michael Nuding, Alexis Roberts, Dan Laveau, Itzy M, Gary Horton, Leisha Olivier, Kate Lamp, Carlos and Sydney, Jessica Hunter, Helena Rudder, Alan Johnston, Mariah, Livy Fun, Mandy M, Scott Troutman Wise, Towton Watson, Mozzie Bear, Brittany G, Dave Burke, Adrian Stakes, 
Nick Spill, Emma Hagel Kissinger, Valerie G, Emiliana, Brian Glass, CB, Maya Noches, Taylor Santana, Will Lewison, Angelique, Smelly Poo Poo Head, Beth Bauer, Ben Coons, Cookie, Esperanza J, Jason Kyle OKC, Joshua Rumley, Danielle Peralta, Hannah R, Brandon, Nicholas Carter, Sawyer Reese Farr, Dr. Diva Loves Horror, Girl That's Scary, M. Fryback, Cassandra, Andrea Simmons, Ashley Higuera, William Rush, Ryan Brom, Megan Ochoa, Laura Lassiter, Natalie de Guzman, Eileen O, Marissa E, Sydney, Henry F, Megan M, Christy Beck, Nancy and Andy, Amanda Lopez, Cody Graves, Andy Terrell, Jason Hanavan, ML Tafoya, Abigail Spitzer, Katie K, Erica Morin, Cameron S, Nicole Stewart, Tris Wynn, K.87, Mariah Jensen, Carrie A, Lonnie Lono, Powell, Kayla E, and Megan H. Hey, wow. Thank you all. Yes, thank you. I got to say, it is clear that each and every one of you are the shit. Oh, well, that's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it writes itself. The yeah. doo-doo, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. <laughs>